0: You're listening to the Common Descent podcast.
1: Hello David, hello Will, and hello listeners. Welcome to episode 144 of the Common Descent
0: podcast. That's a square number.
1: Yeah. We are discussing this episode, Evolutionary Gigantism and Dwarfism. Giant things and tiny things. Yeah, big thing when things get unusually big and when things get notably small. In evolution. In evolution. So we're not talking about individuals,
0: you know, where uh, something in their birth Caused them to grow differently. Right. Gigantism and dwarfism are also medical terms, which we will clear up later. Absolutely.
1: This is talking about trends in evolution. When we see a group of life, typically animals, getting real, real big or getting surprisingly small. And when that happens, why it happens, how it happens in different groups. This is actually a very complex. Like, it's different for each (laughs) aspect that you can look at this for. And there are a few major evolutionary trends that have been drawn from these observations that we will be discussing and kind of teasing apart a part of it on yeah, how, how often does this actually hold up? How often do we
0: actually see these trends be trends? Yeah, yeah, so we're not going to be able to answer the question of why every individual giant or small species is giant or small, but we will get you thinking
1: about it. Absolutely. Especially since we a lot of them, we don't have those answers. Right. Even if we wanted to take the time... We have no answer to give. So that's what we'll be focusing on. Uh, I'm super excited because it's this is a weird evolution, which is one of my... That's one of my favorite kind of topics. Yeah. But we're also discussing it because it is requested. This topic was requested by Finn, Ag Historian, Varun, and Ryan. Thanks, everybody. Yeah, good topic discussions. And these people had requested various parts of what this episode will be covering so yes by yeah. your requests combined yes <laughs> we have created an episode <laughs> but before we get into the episode some quick announcements as usual our first announcement is that we have a patreon we sure do through this patreon we get the financial support to keep the podcast running from top to bottom this is what lets us get the equipment we have keep the episodes hosted online go on our trips and provide you with the experience we're providing you and the people who sign up on our Patreon get some goodies, some extra content, some extra recordings, extra access to us, but they also get their name shouted out if they sign up at a certain level and above. And so for this episode, our new patrons that we would like to welcome are Levi, Rex, Stephen, Carl August, Jordan, Eric, Jason, and Brittany.
0: Wow. Thanks, everybody. Yeah, this is a, a bunch of you. There's welcome. Lots of new people. And hey... You know what makes it extra exciting that we're getting so many new people? How? Why? why? It's Snake Month! It is Snake Month. Last month was Croc Month, this month is Snake Month, which means that all through June and July there have been additional Croc and Snake themings, respectively. This month of July we've had special Snake stuff on social media and a special Snake stuff on our Discord, and we've had bonus episodes... Recently before this episode came out, we released our Snake Month bonus episode, Saving Snakes with Hiral Nike who joined us all the way from South Africa for an awesome discussion about snake conservation and education about snakes. Oh yeah, it was tons of fun. And the other thing tying back in all those great new patrons is that we have these two months an exclusive Patreon tier, the Snakes and Crocs tier. Patrons that sign up at this level not only get a bunch of goodies as usual, but also the contributions we receive at this tier during June and July contribute to charitable donations we will be making at the end of the summer to Snake and Croc Conservation. So a huge thanks to all of the people who have joined our Patreon and contributed to this so far. A huge thanks to those of you who are gonna do it before the month is up. Mm -hmm. By the time this episode comes out, there will be only one week left in Snake Month before the whole extravaganza is over. So if you haven't checked out all of our cool Croc and Snake Month content, if you haven't checked out that new Patreon tier, there is one week left to do it because that tier and a bunch of the special content disappears at the end of July. Yep, yep, yep. This also means that in August, we'll get to look back on it and talk about what we'll be able to do after all of this wonderful support we've been receiving.
1: It's been pretty exciting and a ton of fun. So check out all that extra content and let us know your thoughts if you have any. One way you can let us know your thoughts is that we do have a physical mailing address.
0: Oh, that's true. We do. Uh, it's in the episode description.
1: Yeah, it's still fairly new-ish for this year. So if you want to send us stuff, you can find that address and send it to us. We got a snake month postcard from Elizabeth.
0: Yeah, thank you very much.
1: So it's continuing to celebrate the month. <laughs> but if mail is just not quite personal enough and you really want to interact
0: with us you know, in a more one-on-one way, we are going to be going to Dragon Con. We are making our triumphant return to Dragon Con this year in September, right? September? September. Fantastic. First, it's the Labor Day weekend. Uh in September,
1: we will be going to Dragon Con in Atlanta, Georgia, and doing a few talks. We don't know exactly which ones we'll be doing, so we can't announce everything yet. But we are gonna be there. If you're there and you wanna meet us, that you will announce where we'll be what talks we'll be at once we have that list. Absolutely. But we're excited and excited to see
0: any listeners that might be there as well. Yeah, we got a bunch of listeners who first met us at DragonCon, who learned about us there, so it'll be fun to go back. Stay tuned for more updates. Yes.
1: And with that, we can wrap up announcements and move on to our first official section, the news. Every episode, we like to cover some recent evolutionary fossil paleontological news. And catch ourselves up on what's going on in the studies of the natural world. And to start us off,
0: David, what's the news? Well, as this is our last episode of Snake Month and my last opportunity to sneak in some bonus snake news, and since we're talking about evolutionary trends in this episode, I've got news about snakes and evolutionary trends. And as is often the case with snake news, evolutionary trends specifically about snake venom. No, yeah, no, that makes sense. In this case, we are looking at Venom of the Many-Banded Crate of mm. Southern Asia. This is research by Ji Zhang et al. in Cell Reports, and we will link in the blog post associated with this episode, link in the episode description. In that blog post, we will include a link to a press release about this news on Eureka Alert via the Chinese Academy of Sciences. The Many-Banded Crate, known to its friends as Bungarus multisinctus. <laughs> Lives in Southern Asia and has neurotoxic venom, so venom that predominantly targets the nervous system, and is extremely dangerous. Yeah. This is very potent venom. This is very lethal venom. Bites often result in fatalities, either for prey or for the people that were disturbing or got on the wrong side of the snake. Yeah. Anti-venom is available, and anti-venom is effective, but the press release points out that the efic- efficacy, the effectiveness of the antivenom tends to vary, and it can also cause severe allergic reactions. Oh, gotcha. So there is a need to basically shore up the antivenom, All right. to make it ever better and more specific and more effective. Yeah, we don't want the the
1: cure to cause its own problems. Right. Like if, if we can avoid that. And just to clarify,
0: crates are one of the sea snakes, Right, these are yes. One of the crates are often aquatic or semi-aquatic, and they are elapids. Yeah, so they belong to the same general group as other sea snakes, cobras, coral snakes, uh, mambas, and so on. Yeah. Toward the goal of bettering our anti-venom, this research examined uh, the genetics behind the venom in these snakes. In particular, they point out that previous research on venom evolution in these snakes has targeted the specific portions of their genome f- targeting venom information here they create they sequenced a chromosome level genome to get a much more wide variety of information it sounds like all right yeah instead of targeted sequencing a, a more overall sequencing indeed now this paper goes through lots of different results lots of information they gleaned about the venom and the proteins that are being used But here are a couple of highlights. The major focus of the paper is on a particular group of toxins called three-finger toxins, which are named that because I guess I think the protein has a particular shape that has given it this name. Neat. These are a very abundant and diverse toxin family. In this study, they examine some of the evolutionary history of these toxins. For example, they identify a potential origin, so which origin other genes in the body were kind of repurposed to develop these toxins, as well as when these toxins diversified. So this study concluded that the major split of the subtypes of this toxin happened before the last common ancestor of elapid snakes. Oh. Which suggests that the, these particular kinds of toxins had already diversified before this entire group of snakes even evolved. Wow. And that can be a really handy thing for us to understand because that helps us differentiate between what are commonalities among venomous snakes and what are the specifics. So there are a bunch of toxins that are specific to certain groups of snakes that you only find in those species or in a particular species sometimes. Understanding where the Commonalities and differences are can really help us develop anti venom and understand better the dangers of getting bitten by various snakes. Yeah. The evolutionary history of toxins can also help us to understand why venoms end up the way that they do. So, in this paper, they also discuss trends in diversity of toxins within snake species. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, the more variety of toxins the snake has in its venom glands, can correlate with how lethal the bite is, just because there's so many things at work. And they point out that there has been some research that has shown that a wider diversity of venom toxins sometimes correlates to wider variety of prey.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. You, You have a Swiss army knife of venoms. Yes.
0: So that you can handle different anatomies. That makes sense. And they point out that these crates, this species, eats a wide diversity of prey. So that could also be a potential important piece of their toxin evolution. (laughs) So so if you're going to get bitten by a venomous snake, get bitten by a specialist. Right. (laughs) Well, get bitten by a specialist that specializes in like birds or lizards or something. Yeah, something (laughs) very far from primates. (laughs) So they are examining the evolution of these particular toxins in these snakes to get a sense of what that can teach us about the diversity of these toxins. There is also another interesting note within the paper they hypothesized a particular resistance mechanism to the toxins. So one of the particular toxins that they studied, beta-bungarotoxin, which is named after the crates, (laughs) binds to specific proteins in the potassium channels in nerve cells. And in certain species, mutations to those particular proteins have been hypothesized to hinder the binding of those toxins, thus making them less effective against those species. So based on what they observed about this toxin in this study, they're hypothesizing that these snakes might also have that similar feature. Now this, it sounds like from reading through the paper, this still needs to be investigated further. But if that ends up being true, then these snakes might might not only provide us with information about how the Venoms act and what they're doing and how they attained their diversity evolutionarily, but also a built-in resistance mechanism, which might also be handy if we're developing serums to ward off the effects of envenomation.
1: Makes sense. No, I mean, that, that I think about that all the time with venomous animals
0: of, I mean, and this is the silly version, but if you bite your tongue... What, what does your body do? Right. Or if you're cuddling with another of your species yeah. and accidentally get bitten.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like if you if, if your venom gets into you, what does it do? Yeah. And in some it's, I, I always assume it's like, yeah, I'm, I assume you're immune, but then you get to these where it's like, listen, they've got a whole cocktail of mm-hmm. chemicals that do all sorts of nasty stuff. Cause they eat a bunch of different animals. It's like, does your body counteract all of those or can it not?
0: And in some snakes, there is resistance to their own venoms, but that the mechanism of that resistance isn't always well understood. Yes. Like, why are you resistant to that? And that can be really handy for us to understand.
1: That's awesome. It, it's the cause and the cure at the same time. Yeah. And that's 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 an exciting <laughs> concept,
0: and it's a, it's a cool way to find it out. Yeah. And it ties into one of the topics that came up in our bonus saving snakes episode when we talked with Hiral who pointed out that snakebite is now considered a neglected tropical disease, Yes, which hopefully means that this kind of research will become more and more common, more and more available and uh, able to be performed to help learning about the ways to counteract what is in many parts of the world a pretty common problem. Yes, that that is a regular hazard and danger to many, many populations. Yeah, As we've pointed out many times, snakes are not malicious towards humans. Snakes would rather not have to bite a person. But if you live in a place where there's lots of people and lots of venomous snakes, that just raises the chance that bites are going to happen. And unfortunately, a lot of those places are places where we don't understand the local snakes or their venoms very well, or there aren't as many medical facilities available. So this kind of research can be really important. It'd be cool to see some major funding going toward research like this, both because cool
1: snakes, but also like yeah, let's save some lives. Yes, absolutely, <laughs> people and snake lives. Yes, exactly. Just <laughs> lives in general. Let's let's educate about snakes and that they're not evil, but also let's save anyone they do end up biting yes. because they got scared. <laughs> <laughs> well, my first news uh, is also about a genetic study. Oh, this one looking at trying to parse out where. And potentially when, but mostly what group of wolves gave rise to domestic dogs?
0: Okay. Yeah. I, I've become obsessed with this ever since we did the dog episode. So Episode 94 is all c- about dogs. And incidentally, episode 27 was domestication, which yes. gave me a whole new appreciation for that topic. It's so, so cool. Very cool subject. This is a topic that is still very much a mystery as to where
1: exactly on our planet did dogs first arise? Where did we domesticate them? So this is a genetic study looking at ancient wolf DNA Ooh. to try to help answer that question. This is research by Anders Bergstrom et al. in Nature, and the article is by Stephanie Pappas in Live Science. So first off, we know that dogs were domesticated from the gray wolf, Canis lupus, and that's where we got... Canis familiaris, or sometimes you'll see it as Canis lupus familiaris. Our best friend. Our best friend. This was the first domesticated animal that we have found any evidence of. That dogs were the first group we domesticated. What is not clear is where this happened, for sure when it happened, or even what group of people Mm -hmm. domesticated dogs. We're missing a lot of that very early info. We do have some, you know, hard dates like the earliest skeletal remains of dogs go back 14,000 years, and genetic estimates have that from 14 to maybe 40,000 for the very earliest, but most hover closer to that 14. I think 16 was what I saw most often when we did the episode. And the issue is that looking at the genes of modern dogs and modern wolves and even including ancient dogs probably can't answer the question because dogs have their genetics have gone through crazy shifts mm-hmm. since being domesticated because we've continued to mess with them and
0: artificially select them yeah. 14,000 years is a lot of time for genetic variation and artificial selection it's that that's why we have
1: things that look like pugs and dachshunds yes. and greyhounds <laughs> like that's why we have very oddly shaped dogs but also wolves have evolved since that time mm-hmm. so the modern populations of wolves today are not Genetically the same as the wolves we would have domesticated dogs from. So neither of those are enough to give us the answer. This research is looking at ancient wolf genomes. They analyzed 72 wolf genomes from the last 100,000 years.
0: Wow. Yeah,
1: it's a significant study. Yeah. These are from Europe, Siberia, and North America. 66 are new sequenced genomes. Cool. One of these and this is what a lot of the news is focusing on includes Dogor, a mummified pup from Siberia. That was a 18,000-year-old frozen pup, puppy that had its fur still there, unbroken whiskers like extremely well preserved. Oh, that's fantastic. The pictures just look like a very sleepy pup. Yeah. Is <laughs> <laughs> very cute. But they've debated what it is, whether it's a dog or a wolf. It it They couldn't tell just by looking at it, and so its genome was one of these new gene sequences in this study. They also included an ancient uh, dole, which we mentioned in the dogs episode, is a type of wild dog from still found in parts of Asia today. Mm -hmm. This revealed a number of interesting things. One, that wolves, we knew wolves were doing very well throughout the Ice Age. Uh, Unlike a lot of other large mammal groups, they went through the late Pleistocene pretty well. A lot of mammal groups had trouble. Episode 25. Yep, yep. What the genetics revealed is that they had a globally connected population. Oh. That wolves during this time were globally connected. They were much more interconnected with their breeding than they are today. There was gene flow
0: across the world.
1: Yes. They said it was an order of magnitude greater than today's connectivity of wolf populations. Wow which typically means about 10 times as much connectivity. Mm -hmm. This allowed them to get a really good look at the differing regions and found that today's dogs are most closely related to ancient wolves of eastern Eurasia, more so than those of western Eurasia. So Asia's always been where we've looked, because that's where most of the genetic evidence was already leaning. It seems it's more eastern- Asia than Western Asia, so as they put it, basically somewhere in Asia, not Europe, like right on that end of the continent. All right, but so we're zooming in, zooming
0: in, we're enhancing
1: a little bit, but Asia's right. still real big. That's true. <laughs> uh,
0: you know, we're narrowing it down.
1: They said that that's about as much as we can say. Is we're on okay. the eastern Eastern ish side, but we can't start giving you country names. They did find an interesting subset that dogs in the Near East or and African areas. About half of their ancestral genome comes from a Western Eurasian source. And we don't know exactly what that source is. This could either mean two domestication events, Mm -hmm. uh, which has been talked about many a time, or it could mean that dogs were domesticated in the East. And then when they traveled through the West, interbred with wolves in Western Eurasia and mixed that DNA into their genome. Right.
0: And then that is where that particular region of dogs descended from. Exactly. I I read a paper recently talking about domestic horses making their way to North America that pointed out that most modern American domestic horses trace their ancestry back to the Iberian Peninsula. Yes. Yep. Because that is where this expansion of horses started. Yes. So they're finding some interesting trends.
1: We're still not able to pinpoint specifically where it is. They were able to confirm that Dogor is a wolf. All right. Not a, a wolf dog. puppy. Yeah, it is a wolf puppy. And that dogs did not come from where Dogor was. So Dogor right. is not connected to <laughs> uh, uh, your modern puppies. The uh, northeast Siberia where Dogor was found, uh, the wolves there are not closely related to the oldest dogs we find. So
0: gotcha. so Dogor's adorableness is an ancestral shared feature.
1: Yes, that is just a very cute wolf. <laughs> Unrelated to your dogs. One thing they were able to confirm, none of the wolf genomes they sequenced were a direct direct match for dog ancestry. None of those synced up. So none of the wolves they looked at were from a population that seems to be the one that gave rise to dogs, which could mean that we just haven't found that population because there's tons of areas where we have not found wolves or... DNA has not been collected. So it's just very likely we haven't stumbled upon it or done that work yet. But we at
0: least have a half of a continent. (laughs) We know better and better where to look. Man, how cool would it be if we found an ancient wolf that was directly tied... Right? ...to dogs. That would be super cool. I'm just waiting. I'm just waiting for it. Keep going through that permafrost. (laughs) Well, my second bit of news is about Bugs. Much, much older than the things we've been talking about. But there is a giant twist in this story uh, following the theme of the episode. This is research by Yenja Fu et al. in Proceedings of the Royal Society B. And we will link in the blog post to an article in Live Science by Nicoletta Liness. The fossils in question in this study are ancient water boatmen.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, So
0: water boatmen are aquatic insects that have oar-like legs, like their back legs are paddles, and they swim around. This particular ancient species is Carataviella popovai from the mid to late Jurassic, 163 or so million years ago, from the Haifungo Formation in northeastern China. Studies of insects are all, always very exciting because we just don't get that many insect fossils under typical conditions, as we discussed in episode 99. This study, they analyzed 160 fossilized examples of these water boatmen. Wow. Including 30 adult females with the feature that spurred the discussion, eggs on their legs. Ooh. Specifically, each of those females had a cluster of eggs on their middle left leg. Oh, wow. So these are insects, so they have three legs on either side. The middle left leg is where the eggs were.
1: I, I wasn't expecting it to be uh, a-
0: asymmetrical. Asymmetri- Neither were they. Weird. That is an important feature, and I'll talk about why in a second. The eggs themselves were arranged in five to six rows, with six to seven eggs in each row. Okay. And each egg was attached by a short little stalk to the leg. The eggs themselves were between 1.1 and 1.2 millimeters long, (laughs) which is notable, the authors point out, because that's about 10% the length of the full adult body. Whoa. So the adult is only 12 or 13 millimeters. So each egg is about 10% the length of the adult. So these are... Big eggs. So th- that leg's just loaded down Absolutely. <laughs> Which, they pointed out, might be one of the reasons they kept the other side free. Yeah. Is to help not be so in- uh, encumbered while trying to move around. I'm picturing, like, uh, a Christmas story when he's
1: wearing all the jackets and just has the arms <laughs> st- stuck out to the side. You just have one leg yeah. with a
0: big old water wing of eggs on it. Now, this is a really cool find for a number of reasons. For one, these are fossilized in sediment. Yep. So we talked in episode 62 about amber. Amber is a very common place to find bugs. These are sediment fossilized. Very few fossil insects document brood care. This is brood care, an adult carrying its eggs around, which we, you know, brood care is known in lots and lots of animals, including lots of insects. Yep. But fossil insects rarely document it. And this is the earliest direct evidence of insect brood care predating previous evidence by about 40 million years. Ooh, that's a chunk. It's also a unique strategy. Asymmetric egg-carrying behavior has, according to the authors, never been observed in an insect before. What? Living or extinct. But there's so many of them. Yep. (laughs) It is known in crustaceans. Oh, really? So there are other aquatic arthropods that do it. Oh. So maybe the aquatic aspect, because most insects are not aquatic. Yes, insects yes. tend not to like the water very much.
1: Yeah, we, it, it's a, one of the weird things for how diverse they are that they're uh, they're not actually super abundant in the water and are just like wholly absent from marine habitats.
0: Yes, so we've seen this in crustaceans, but we have never seen this before in an insect, which is super cool. Intriguing. It's also interesting to note because carrying your eggs around has a significant cost to it. This is a hard thing to do. The two points that they make is that, number one, it creates reduced mobility. That leg is being used. And also, I love the way they put it, increased conspicuousness. Yeah. That, like, yeah, if I want to eat an insect, that one with all the bulges on it. Yeah, the the one that is extra insect now. (laughs) (laughs) And... They also wonder if this particular habit might be related to the size of the eggs. Mm. So the eggs are big and big eggs means a different circumstance. Mainly, big eggs are increased conspicuousness, that they're easier to see. They're more nutritious. There's just more egg there. So they're often more in danger of being targeted by predators. But also, big eggs have more trouble receiving sufficient amounts of oxygen. Yes. So oxygen has to diffuse into the egg, and the bigger you are, the more has to go in there for the egg to be sufficiently aerated. And the less surface area you have... Compared to volume. Compared to the volume inside. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. So the authors point out that carrying the eggs around, despite the cost, the, the danger to the adult could potentially be helping keep them safe, right? You're with the adult, so you're less likely to be eaten, and also keeps the eggs moving. Yes, exactly. Which aerates the eggs, right? It means you're moving, you have water flow, which helps increase oxygen. We see strategies similar to this in modern water boatmen. So they made the point that uh, some species of modern water boatmen will lay their eggs in places with good water flow, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. including in the gills of crayfish. Because, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, there's always going to be water flow through there because that's the point. <laughs> so carrying your eggs around might help keep them aerated. They also pointed out that the stalks the eggs are on Might also be part of this, because if it's on on a little stalk, it can wiggle around. Yes, exactly. That helps. That means it is a bit more mobile, each Mm -hmm. individual egg. Yeah, it's...
1: Well, it's... Yeah, the brood care makes, you know, total sense, especially if you've got big eggs that might be hard to hide. Mm -hmm. Like, you can't tuck these into little crevices as easily, because they're massive. And the aeration makes sense. The asymmetrical is still super weird. Yeah, that's so. You know, asymmetry in nature is always notable. Always a little off-putting. Yeah, because it's it is not <laughs> the norm. It's not what you expect. Yeah, at least you know, like it's we are On all the not perfectly. Yes, exactly. We are all not all not perfectly symmetrical, and our organs are asymmetrical. But it's very rare that you see an animal that's just like nope, left arm. I'm I'm. That's right. where we're. That's where my evolution has leaned. So when it's, when there's a behavior like this that does that, my brain just wants to know all, all of the whys.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. Couple of fun little extra points. The authors point out that egg carrying behavior can be traced as far back as Cambrian arthropods. Wow. Which is pretty neat. And another just little fun note. They examined the setae, so the little tiny hairs on the legs and head of the adults of these bugs and found that they provide a filter, so kind of like baleen on a Mm -hmm. whale, like a filtration system, and they measured the size of the spacing there and found that the size lined up extremely well with the eggs of fairy shrimp, (laughs) which are also abundant in the same areas where these fossils are found. So on top of all the cool brood care stuff, they also identified that the filtration system on the front of these insects seems to be highly specialized for eating a certain type of other animal's eggs. Best way to make egg is to eat egg. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very cool study. What fantastic fossils. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, more about eggs, episode 92. Ancient DNA, episode 34. <laughs> we have not done a Water Boatman episode. We have not. So, Insects 99. Yes. Uh, we have not done Water boatmen. So apologies for that. But... Speaking of things that lay eggs, that's the only
1: segue I got for this. Sure. But more topically for this episode, speaking of a giant, we thought, oh, maybe, giant marabou stork from the island of Floris with some new fossil material. Oh, cool. This is research by Annika Maier et al. in the Royal Society of Open Science, and the article is by Riley Black in Nat Geo. So, Floris, uh, an island near Indonesia, 60,000 years ago, uh, tons of fossils have come from this island. It's come up in the news over and over again because there's been a notable number of
0: evolutionarily dwarfized mm-hmm. species. Yep. It also came up last episode because that is one of the places where you get Komodo dragons. It is indeed. So, <laughs> this is just
1: an awesome island, top yep. to bottom.
0: Well, it's also where the so-called hobbit yes. is from, Homo floresiensis, the ancient human species that is also thought to be a dwarfed species. Yes.
1: Yeah, potentially is, seems to be smaller because they're on an island, which we'll talk about more this episode. We sure will. It also has a small proboscidean yep. stegodon, a small elephant cousin. A little cousin.
0: elephant. <laughs> episode 66. But they also had giant marabou storks. Now, remind me, because I don't have an image in my head, but I associate that the word marabou stork with awesome. Yes. These are super cool birds, These right? are the, and there's
1: a couple of uh, species today, but the one that is the marabou stork is an African species of stork that has those long scissor-like bills and the fleshy vulture head. Right. These birds are big, like three, four foot tall while standing, and are carrion storks. Uh, they eat carrion. They also will hunt small animals. Like, that bill can do whatever it wants. Right. <laughs> <laughs> to whoever it wants. Because these these are big, powerful birds. This species, this is leptoptilus robustus, which was more than five feet tall. Whew. This was a big bird. This was a big bird. <laughs> now, this species was described 2010. So this isn't a brand new species. And the initial interpretation of this big stork this giant stork is that it was an island giant
0: and likely flightless right that which they... often happens fewer predators you can get bigger fewer competition animals you can eat lots of food you don't need to fly you can support a big body size and so on exactly that these storks got
1: isolated on floris and then lost flight got real big this study is looking at 21 new bones discovered for this species that give us anatomy we did not have originally. Ooh. These came from Liangbua Cave, and most importantly, include wing bones, which we did not have beforehand. Excellent. And these wings don't seem to be from a flightless bird. Oh. This would have had about a 12-foot wingspan. Whoa! It seems to be fully flighted. The authors said, this specimen is almost certainly capable of active flight. These look like wing wings, not... Used to be
0: wings. Wow, so it wasn't being a small theropod. Yeah. It was being a small airplane. Exactly, and that is one of the big shifts. Originally, they thought that it was likely
1: going after small prey walking around in the underbrush of the forests of the island. Now that it seems like it was flighted, it's probably more likely that it was acting as a scavenger like the marabou storks we see today and other
0: giant marabou storks from the fossil record that seem to have anatomy for scavenging yeah yeah well we did discuss in episode 139 when we talked about vultures all the benefits of large body size for a lifestyle of scavenging absolutely so this shifts how we look at it uh, behaviorally
1: it also may give a connection as to why when extinct the big herbivore on the island that likely would have been a mainstay for a scavenger like this was Stegodon, the small proboscidean and there were stegodon bones found in the cave so they they said which is a place that the stork likely wouldn't have gone if not enticed <laughs> <laughs> smelled something good yep followed its nose <laughs> which would have been easier for it the most yeah that's true <laughs> so it's likely that that was a main part of the diet for the if this was a scavenging stork that they would have been scavenging these carcasses of stegodon and when stegodon went extinct It's likely that had a negative effect, and it seems to be that when Stegonon went extinct, this stork went extinct, and that effectively the ecosystem collapsed. Mm -hmm. Uh, We don't get Komodo dragons there after that point. They survived elsewhere. Mm -hmm. So it may even give us insights into the extinction of this animal, but also revealing that it's flighted kind of overturns the idea that it's an island giant. Like, it's not likely that you got stuck on this island... If you have 12 feet of wings, you can go whatever island you want with that. So you're not likely stuck here, and that's why you got big. In fact, giant marabou storks were not common, but were much more broadly distributed in the fossil record than they are today. Today we have the marabou stork and two related species, when I looked them up real quick, that are not as big. But in the fossil record, there are actually a number of very large cousins of the marabou stork, the best known is Leptoptylos falconeri, which is the largest stork we've ever found in the fossil record. These reached six foot seven inches at the very biggest. Wow. This is a bird I'd have to look up to. <laughs> yeah, well, that's,
0: that is two meters. That, that is a
1: straight two meters. Yeah, that's a big bird. This makes it one of the tallest and heaviest flying birds in history, and its remains are found at sites in Africa and Eurasia. Robustus... The, Flor- the florist stork has a lot of anat- anatomical similarities to falconeri, as well as a couple of other large marabou species, titan uh, from Java and liuai from China, which suggests that it, it itself
0: is not a giant, but just part of a group of giants. This is what we talked about last episode with Komodo dragons. Exactly. There has been research suggesting that they might not be island giant lizards. They were just part of a lineage of giant lizards and these happen to be the ones that survived
1: yes which is we're not saying no it's not giant no that's giant that right no matter
0: how you measure (laughs) it that's a giant bird this species in this island is not unique among its lineage for being giant
1: exactly and it doesn't seem to be giant because it's on an island yes so the reasons and the history for the giantism is what seems to have shifted very cool which is a perfect segue to our main topic. Sure is. Well done. Let's Way talk- to go, Annika. Right? We, we paid her to, to publish this study right Can you now. just
0: hold those bones off
1: for a little bit longer?
0: <laughs> I, I met Annika when I wrote about, many years ago, her study on giant geese. Yes. And from Italy. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Were those on the, uh, the Sicily? Uh... Uh, yeah, it was Gargano Island, I think. Yes. Gargano,
1: which I, yeah, exactly. Yep, yep. Which, yeah, another island big bird. Yep, that's happened a lot. It's happened quite a bit. So let's talk about what does it mean to find giantism or dwarfism in a group of life? And also, how does it differ from when we talk about it in us humans? Yes, that'll be important to clear up. Absolutely. Stay tuned after the break. The terms gigantism and dwarfism are very common within evolutionary biology. Yeah, we've used them. Yep. But they are also common in our everyday language, in the human sense, because these are- Medical terminology. In medical terminology, because these are medical conditions as well for us humans, while also being used for evolutionary situations for life in
0: general. Right. And the medical- version is not what this episode is about.
1: No, these are two different uses of these terms. So quickly, let's define what these medical terms mean so that we can differentiate and be clear. When it comes to medical gigantism or medical dwarfism, these are conditions that happen to an individual during development. While they're growing, something either increases their growth rate or hinders it. There's a bunch of different things that can cause this in individuals. Mm -hmm. It can be genetic, it can be situational that something happened just during the development. There are tumors that can grow in the pituitary gland that cause an increase in growth hormone that can cause gigantism. Other genetic conditions can cause a lower amount of growth hormone, which can cause people to grow less. Mm -hmm. Both of these are medically studied conditions that have been documented for, for throughout human history and therefore also have... Deal with individuals, so there are different feelings around the terms. Dwarfism is not always the preferred term, right? Some people prefer short stature or uh, little people instead of dwarf or dwarfism for this condition. And generally, gigantism is anyone who's having an increase in growth hormone. The record was Robert Wadlow, who is eight foot tall, 11 inches, almost nine feet tall, which is pretty big for a person, it's the tallest person who's ever lived so far. Well, dwarfism is typically cut off at anyone who is as an adult under 4 feet 10 inches. Gotcha. So, that's kind of the range. It's anything between is usually cons- not between Robert Wadlow, but above <laughs> that was that 4 feet 10 inches and without a growth hormone increase is average Range of heights. Right.
0: Is not considered to have one of these conditions. Yes.
1: So this is not just someone who happens to be short because they're a short family. Mm-hmm. It, there is some medical condition. In evolution, we call this phyletic gigantism, and phyletic dwarfism. Right.
0: Or if you prefer evolutionary gigantism and dwarfism. Exactly. Which is what we'll put in the title because it's more understandable. Yes.
1: Phyletic is what you will see in most studies and papers and conversations scientifically about it. I think that's also what the Wikipedia article's title is. Absolutely. So that just means evolutionary situations where life is getting big or getting small. Right. Species,
0: populations, over generational time
1: because we can see the same sort of developmental anomalies happen in other animals Mm -hmm. you know where they can also develop and be particularly small or grow larger than expected but that's not phyletic that's once again a developmental medical situation we will be discussing evolutionary trends where we see life get real big or get real small
0: Right, so if we think of examples from the world today, there are giants, like giant snakes like anacondas. Yes. That is a species, a lineage of life that has grown to large sizes versus, are are there pygmy crocs? Yeah, there are. There's dwarf crocs, dwarf caiman. There you go. Those are small species Mm -hmm. of crocodilians that are part of small lineages. And one of the reasons why we wanted to differentiate these two, number one, just to clear up the difference between the medical and the evolutionary terminology, but also because in the medical human sense, these are terms that refer to conditions that affect actual people. Yes, this is real life for many, many people on the planet. And are also sometimes stigmatized. Yes. Which is part of why we wanted to set that out ahead of time. We are talking about evolutionary trends. From here on out, we're not talking about humans at all.
1: Yes. Now, when we talk about a group evolving to be large or small. This, as you said, can be a population. So it could be same species, but a population for one reason or another is a notably different size from the average sizes of the rest of that species. But you can also get
0: species that among their group, this species is particularly big or small. Right. Last episode, we Mm -hmm. talked about Komodo dragons as being the giants among monitor lizards.
1: Yeah, that, that species is... Just a step above all other monitors. No one else is, like, right next to it. It's just that species, which makes it a notable gi- giantism, phyletic giantism species.
0: Yeah, Gigantism and giantism are terms that you will see. Yes. Sort of interchangeably. Th- those are we might We might switch back oh, and forth yeah. <laughs> <laughs> during the episode. It, it,
1: it absolutely will happen. I kept having trouble when I was typing because I'd start yeah. out saying, like, th- sometimes I'll be like, yeah, these giants. And I'd be, all right, giantism. No, gigantism. These gigants. Gigantisms.
0: giganotism
1: Yes. But you can also have lineages, like a group where it is whales. Mm-hmm. That is a, a whole group that a bunch of them have gotten... Big as a group. Sauropods. Sauropods. Gi- huge. This, just, this group trended toward gigantism. So this is studied heavily because the causes behind it aren't always the same. Why a group or species or population gets big or small can be very different depending on the current situation that it happens. The group... You know, different groups react differently. Mm-hmm. And even sometimes the lifestyle they're living. A yeah. predator or an herbivore don't get big for the same reasons. Yeah,
0: the reason whales are big and sauropods were big are different reasons. Yes. Also, there's a lot of variation in what counts as giant.
1: Yeah, and that the definition behind
0: what 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 is giant, if the whole group's giant, should we still call them giants? Right. Like, Komodo dragons are giant lizards. That are about the size of an average adult human being or an average adult wolf yes. or thereabouts. So typically, it is always in reference to
1: their relatives. Yes. So either their if it's a population, their same species, or if it's a species, the rest of their family tree. Right.
0: We have we, we mentioned uh, a couple times in the past dwarf sauropods. Mm-hmm. So sauropods are the big, long-necked, four-legged, long-tailed dinosaurs. The dwarf sauropod, the smallest sauropods, were still larger than most big herbivores on the land today.
1: Exactly. They were just
0: tiny for sauropods.
1: And that's that it is always
0: relative to the rest of their group. Because it's a trend. Yes. If they've been that size the whole time forever, then there's, there's not a trend in size difference. We're exploring when evolution trends towards a particular different size.
1: Well, and it, it's it's why you won't ever see for phyletic giants and dwarfs a like cutoff point like we mm-hmm. mentioned for humans, where if you're below this height, you won't see that because it's not that measurement that matters. It's what everything else is measured. Yes, with us humans, we know that number, so we can put a pretty solid, yes, a, st- a stagnant number that's not going to. And change. we're going
0: individual to individual, and yes. it has medical implications mm-hmm. and all sorts of other factors. With this case, it's just related to what is typically the
1: size. It's the same reason that if I gave you a giant can of Coke, it still might just be the size of, like, <laughs> a really big sports water bottle. Right. You know, it's not, it's not going to be too big for you to carry necessarily, but it's still going to be big for a can of Coke. Right. That's the concept we're dealing with here. A giant Dorito is not actually going to be all that big. No, I can still pick it up and eat <laughs> it. <laughs> now, one of the big questions is why? Why? That's, that's always one of the first questions. Why get big or get small? You know, what what is the benefit to being particularly large or particularly small? There are a number of reasons why being big is quite good. Mm-hmm. Some of the ones you'll see listed for a large animal, the, the benefits to being larger is, first off, they seem to be more resilient to changes in ecosystem. These animals tend to do better shifting between habitats than a smaller one would. Allowing them to move through ecosystems more efficiently and
0: occupy a wider range of habitats. Yes. If you're bigger, you will naturally be able to have a wider territory. Mm-hmm. Uh, a day's walk for an elephant can be many miles, whereas a smaller animal cannot cover nearly as much space.
1: Yes. And even if like a mouse could travel the distance of an elephant, it probably would not fare as well in this new strange habitat as the elephant can mm-hmm. just by being bigger. Another benefit is that large animal bodies tend to be more stable in, specifically, homeostasis. Their temperature, their internal chemistry tends to be more regular and stable
0: than a small one, which is going to heat up and lose heat much quicker. Right. We, we've mentioned before on the podcast this term gigantothermy, mm-hmm. which refers to the fact that large bodies retain heat much more efficiently. In fact, they often have trouble losing heat. Which means that it is less of a struggle for a large-bodied animal to keep warm. Yes.
1: Another thing that's much easier if if an animal has a big body versus a tiny body is you're less likely to be eaten. That's true. That's a big benefit is they just grow out of being on the menu for many predators because the lion can't take down an elephant easily, so it doesn't. Mm -hmm. Another sense is competition. Within a species, larger individuals very often have more success in mating. You know, that... We see that in many social species, you know, where bulls or crocs or things where there is competition among males. The bigger male typically is the one who has better time breeding.
0: Right. Being bigger means you can be flashier. Mm-hmm. It means you can be stronger. It means you can be more intimidating, all of which can help with reproductive success.
1: Which can be a big driver toward getting as big as you can get. Mm-hmm. We also tend to see longer lifespans in large animals that just longevity Tends to increase with size. A mouse does not live as long as a whale does. It just tends to go that way. So they get more time on the planet the bigger they are. (laughs) And, and this is one that I had forgotten about, but we mentioned this in the brains episode. 121. That larger brains come with larger bodies, which often can increase
0: intelligence. Oh, yeah. Well, and actually on that note, we talked about this in episode 120 and I think a few others, that for many senses larger organs are just better at it yes eyes the bigger an eye is the more light can get in and more in many respects eyesight good eyesight correlates with big eyes
1: yes so just physically increasing an animal's overall size also tends to increase the size of its sensing organs its brain even its cells and which can have benefits to not having it we talked about having particularly tiny cells with Mm -hmm. the fairy flies, and that that comes with its own complications, being big brings lots of advantages
0: to the different species of life that have taken that route. Which then really makes you wonder, with all those benefits for being big, why would evolution favor being tiny? Absolutely. And the benefits there are mostly that, yeah, you're not big. (laughs) Yep.
1: (laughs) So you don't have to deal with the downsides of being big, which is that Being big takes lots of resources. So many resources. Which means typically you need a much wider range to live in. Lots of space, lots of food. Yep. They need more of everything. Those long lives are great, but it tends to slow down reproduction rates. Yes, which can slow down adaptation to change. Yep. It can also decrease population. That if something happens to an animal's population that is big... Those animals aren't going to rebound as quickly. If there's only a couple thousand in that population, as opposed to hundreds of thousands, you're going to be in more trouble. And then because they're not having many babies every year, that population is going to bounce back very slowly. Being small, you don't need much food. You don't need much space. They can make babies like crazy.
0: (laughs) Yep. And so there can be millions of them. Yep. Yep. Insects are great at this. A lot of, like, rodents tend to be really good at this. So
1: being small brings the advantages of less nutrient and space
0: requirements, so the resources, the the, the entry cost is much lower. <laughs> yes. And also, while being big can make an animal safer from predation, being small means an animal is more likely to be on the menu, but also has an easier time avoiding detection.
1: Wait, your, the hiding spots for a small animal increase exponentially. Absolutely, if you can hide underneath the bark
0: of a dead log, like yeah, underneath a single dead leaf, is, uh, like, that's an yeah. amazing hiding ability. <laughs> <laughs> and it also opens up habitat space, so a small animal can't have quite as wide a range or territory. But if an animal needs to make a nest, for example. If an animal is the size of a fly or the size of a shrew, the options for nesting areas can be much more diverse. Yes. Uh, You can live your entire life in one tree or something like that.
1: And you can also have a much higher density of species in an area of small animals versus big animals, just because there's not enough room for 200 species of
0: elephant (laughs) all within one area. And then sometimes the benefits or downsides can be conditional. So we've talked before, animals in the ocean, Mm -hmm. it tends to be beneficial to be large because that helps with temperature regulation and so on. If an animal lives in a cold environment, especially something like mammals, being large can help with staying warm. Whereas if it is a burrowing animal, Mm -hmm. being small might be beneficial. If it is a flying animal being small tends to be beneficial because it's easier to get into the air. It's easier to fly. But then, of course, on the other hand, we've talked about how large size in flying animals carries its own benefits for certain lifestyles. So it can vary dramatically with lifestyle and with habitat.
1: And you can see opposite reactions, evolutionary responses to the same situation by different groups. Yes. The same situation might be better for one group to get small, but a Different groups, same situation,
0: to get big. Yeah. Mammals tend to get really big where it's cold. Yeah. And reptiles and amphibians tend to stay quite small where it's cold. Yes.
1: So the reasons for being big and small, we have lists. Uh, one of the biggest differences is how those two respond to extinctions. The mm. Big animals tend to suffer quite more notably when an extinction hits, when a mass extinction hits. Because they are slow to adapt, they are slow to
0: reproduce, and they need more resources. We've mentioned that, I think, every time we've ever talked about extinction on the podcast. Absolutely. It's such a dramatic difference. While
1: small life is the ideal, if your ecosystem just collapsed, you want to be able to make do with
0: the minimum. (laughs) Because you might be dealing with a minimal ecosystem. If I can live in this puddle for a while, then fantastic. Awesome.
1: Now, the causes and trends behind the evolution for these two features is extremely varied and often poorly understood. There are many situations where it is hard to pin down exactly why this species is as big as it is or as small as it is, especially because there can be multiple causes that could potentially make sense and... That makes studying it sometimes very difficult because we weren't there to watch it get big or get small. So we don't know exactly what the scenario was. We just now suddenly have a big lizard and we don't know the history fully. We do see some patterns, though, and things that tend to show up quite often when looking at these conditions, these situations. With gigantism, it is noted that very often when we talk about at least the biggest giants, what one paper called global giants that are <laughs> the the biggest forms of animal life we've seen on the planet, that these are all post paleozoic. That's yes. mesozoic and Senate the last 200 or so million years. That's when we see animal life get real, real big before that, not as much. We also tend to see them only show up tens to hundreds of million years after a mass extinction that it takes a while for life to get that big again
0: after a mass extinction. Yes. For mo- We've mentioned this before. For most of the last 200 million years, there have been all over the world animals that are rhino-sized, that are elephant-sized, and uh, for a lot of the Mesozoic era, bigger than that. Yep. Sauropod-sized, which is a category that includes only sauropods. Yep. <laughs> but, like, those giant sizes are relatively common in the Mesozoic and Cenozoic in time, but take a while to get to and are relatively rarely reached in terms of how many different lineages achieve those sizes. And you
1: tend to only see giants show up in a lineage well after it has evolved. So long after its ancestors. Exactly. One of the other big questions is, is there an environmental trend? Do we tend to see giants show up in places more often than others? And sometimes you can find connectors, uh, marine giants tend to be associated with high plankton levels in the ocean. Like, that's high seafloor productivity is another... Those high producers of base-level food... Yeah, lots of nutrients. Lots of nutrients. Does tend to seem to correlate with many marine giants. Okay, that makes sense. There have been trends found with temperature and habitat size... In some cases, but not all. So those don't seem to be consistently that only big environments can make big animals or only warm or cold environments can make big animals. What tends to be, what at least one paper found to be much more important was the development of the ecological infrastructure that a well-developed ecosystem, not a bare minimums ecosystem, but a healthy,
0: stable ecosystem, that's most important to getting really big animals. Which makes tons of sense, because if it is an ecosystem that is unstable, that, you know, a particularly hard winter is just going to completely collapse all of your plants or all of your ecosystem structure, you can't support giant, long-lived animals in an ecosystem that doesn't reliably produce enough nutrition for them to live on. Yeah, as stated with the mass extinction scenario, giants don't tend to do well
1: in unstable situations. Yes.
0: It is one of the things we've pointed out before, that if you name an animal species in the world today that's larger than human beings, odds are it's endangered. Yep. Because today, the world today, is not a very stable or healthy place for large animals to live. Ecosystems are in flux. We are constantly changing them,
1: and big animals struggle with that. There are also some historical situations that are strongly connected to the presence of gigantic animals... Oxygen levels are often looked at mm. for when we see giants. Now, there are some very significant patterns that match global
0: oxygen levels and then others that do not. Yes, we've talked about that before mm-hmm. as well. This this topic, if anybody's interested in hearing more about this particular question about a specific group, go listen to episode 101 about sauropods. Yep, yep. <laughs> we talked about this.
1: Absolutely, <laughs> we did. The most famous example of oxygen levels in gigantism is the carboniferous arthropods, the giant insects and arthropods of the carboniferous. When oxygen levels were way higher, it was 35% oxygen instead of the 21 today. And for land dwelling arthropods that passively take in oxygen through holes in their exoskeleton, like insects do today, higher oxygen means easier to breathe Mm -hmm. means you can oxygenate your body better, which means you can sustain a larger body, a insect that is that large today would not physically be able to get enough oxygen into its
0: system with the levels we're at now this was the time period of mega neurids mm-hmm. they giant gr- griffin flies they're griffin not technically flies. dragonflies they're <laughs> griffin flies with wingspans as long as your arm yep and arthropleura the big millipede cousin. i don't know if they're actually millipedes millipede cousins that were like I don't know, two meters long, yep. something ridiculous.
1: Would I would have been able to lay down on one and probably wouldn't have hung off. <laughs> My feet would have still been on Arthropleura. We also see gigantism in aquatic arthropods during this time, but also other famous times like Ordovician trilobites, which got quite big for trilobites. Hmm. And... Silurian and Devonian Eurypterids. Sea scorpions. Sea scorpions, which include the largest arthropods. They sure do. So these are true arthropod giants. Eight or nine feet long, two and a half meters at least. Precisely, in fact. And the interesting thing here is that it doesn't seem to be for the same reason. Oxygen levels don't seem to affect aquatic arthropods the same way they affect terrestrial land-dwelling arthropods. Yeah. So you can't.
0: Just say, hey, more oxygen means bigger buggy things. Well, it depends on where you're talking. We've also talked about the ambiguous correlation between oxygen levels and large vertebrate animals. Yes, we have. Where that also isn't an exact one-to-one. You can't just say more oxygen equals bigger animals. No.
1: And to further that note, oxygen correlated with insect size up until the end of the Jurassic. And then insects stopped following oxygen levels. So... Even in insects, the famous ones for getting big because of oxygen levels, they only did that for a time. Mm -hmm. I think it was the first 140 million years of their evolution. They track with oxygen very, very well. Then we hit the end of the Jurassic and we see them level off, that they become much more constant in their size, regardless of what oxygen is doing. Other factors are likely overriding that influence. Precisely. We see... In fact, size decreased in the early Cretaceous, even though O2 went up. And what we see correlate there is the evolution of birds.
0: Yep, that doesn't
1: surprise me. Yep, becoming very, very popular, very, very diverse and successful. And that it could be that predatory and competition pressures overwrote oxygen pressures. And in fact, we see the same again in the Cenozoic that the size of insects goes down once more and one paper at least noted that that could be blamed on either birds getting better at being birds or bats oh yeah that even with as much oxygen as they could <laughs> want it's There's not likely the... we'd see big insects today yeah, the skies are getting crowded mhm so even if somehow we magically added all the oxygen we had back in the carboniferous today it's not likely giant insects would evolve because they haven't been following oxygen levels for the last over 66 million years. So there is no one answer trend typically when it comes to gigantism. We also see that it is sometimes difficult to determine what is required for an organism to be big. I think we talked about this in the sauropods episode that a lot of sauropod features, you know, their, their column-like legs, their small heads,
0: their... That efficient respiratory system.
1: Yeah, that... A lot of sauropod feature, you sauropod, you know, the sauropods that we typically are talking about, the big ones, were also considered to be biological requirements for the size they were at. Gigantic size, which was in many papers considered to be above 10 tons, that they didn't get above 10 tons until the Jurassic, and that's when we start seeing these features. But more recent findings have found sauropoda morphs from the Triassic that were around 10 tons that don't look like the sauropods that don't look like the big sauropods they've got normal feet and they've got a still relatively large head for they're at least for a sauropod yeah they look like early sauropods but were massive so it's even difficult to say well an animal's body can't get this big unless they have these features well It seems that there are other things that can be important, allow them to get that big without looking like the biggest species.
0: It is often so tempting for us to look at a particular group of giant animals and say, this one environmental feature. Yes. Or this one anatomical feature, that is what allowed them to do that. And basically every one of those doesn't hold up the way that we'd like it to. No. being gigantic is a very complex feature it affects everything about an animal behavioral and anatomical everything and there are so many factors that lead into it
1: absolutely so it while it may seem like yet yeah, growing big that should be a very easy thing yeah, you just to keep figure out and like for us to understand of like how right. complicated can it's getting big why is it getting big how's it getting big I am asking two questions,
0: (laughs) but the truth is there are 17 answers.
1: Every group you look at, those
0: two questions can have extremely different and contradictory answers. Mm -hmm. And this all ties into one of, uh, I think, the most common misconceptions that comes up when talking about paleontology and ancient animals. And we've talked about this before, is this common perception that being ancient, being prehistoric, is correlated with being big. Yes. This that life was, was bigger back then. Yes, that things were just... Everything used to be bigger during the prehistoric times, which isn't true Mm-mm. because many different groups have achieved giant sizes at different times under different conditions in different habitats. If you list right the largest ever insects and the largest ever sharks and the largest ever dinosaurs and the largest ever mammals... Did not overlap in time. No. like Those are groups that never met each other, and they didn't even all in- overlap in habitat. No. Like, the reasons things get big are many and varied, and the times they get big are many and varied. This is a very complex subject.
1: Well, and that myth of prehistoric life being larger is really a misconception based off of statistics that it seems like, well, yeah, there's way more large life in the past than there is today. Well, yeah. Most life is in the past. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> more species have gone extinct than we've discovered. <laughs> like most of Earth's history has happened because we're in the present. Like that's how that's how time works. Right. So when you look backwards, there's always going to be more examples to look at. Mm-hmm. So to sti- statistically, you're going
0: to come across the biggest this, the biggest this, the biggest that. Also, large animals fossilize better. Yes, they do. So we are likely to know about them. Although, this is the point in this particular topic where it's always informative to point out that the largest animals of all time are alive today. Are here right now. Blue whales are the biggest things as far as we know. Biggest animals that have ever lived on the planet Earth notably so. (laughs) We have those right now, so that's one of our claim to fame. Also, the biggest seals,
1: uh, the elephant seals are the biggest seal that's ever lived. Horses are about as big as they've ever been, so there's a bunch. There's There's a a bunch of big animals, and as we were saying, we tend to see big later on, after extinctions, after a group has arose. So, groups that have shown up recently, we probably have not seen their giants yet. Yes.
0: And then, of course, there's always the point, episode 25, we are currently in a world that is on the other end of a mass extinction where Boy, we are lost weak. a lot of our big animals. So our world is unusually depauperate in the large animal category. Yep. The the only elephant-sized species in the world today are elephants. Yep. And that's weird. <laughs> yes. That's an unusual thing to have.
1: If we had invented electricity before... we <laughs> <laughs> should have started writing books. All right? Then we would have had years ago. tons of stories and then we'd all be mourning them. <laughs> Now, when it comes to phyletic dwarfism, there aren't as the studies aren't as numerous because we don't tend to see these common trends to you know large group scale just getting big. We don't tend to see that with getting small. This tends to seem to be more situational that we see a situation prefer a smaller body that is more idealized for an animal that is smaller. So we see a population, group, species start evolving smaller bodies. The causes that we that can cause this are lack of resources. If, for whatever reason, the environment you're in cannot support a large body, or at least doesn't support it as well. Mm-hmm. You know, like Maybe you could survive at the size of a horse, but you'd be way better if you're the size of a goat. Then goat-sized horses are likely what we would see evolve there if they can survive long enough to respond. There has been some support for lack of area, though that doesn't
0: seem to be as... Regular as resources. Right. Smaller habitat could potentially be correlated with smaller species. Absolutely. I saw one note that
1: said lack of predators, which is often attributed to getting big because now you don't have to hide from predators, but that lack of predators could also just allow small species to thrive. Yes. So you could get a larger population of small species. Yeah.
0: You don't have to get big to protect yourself. Yes. Yeah, now this species can be smaller and get away with it. We see tons of examples today of dwarf species, dwarf, dwarf crocs. Yeah. There are pygmy chameleons. Mm-hmm. There are pygmy hippos. There are tons of dwarf or pygmy or I don't, miniature. The only miniature I can think of is miniature horses, which yes. is not an example of phyletic evolution. No, no we did that. We to them. did that. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, many, many tiny species. Uh, marmosets and tamarins I saw listed as
1: particularly small primates. Oh yeah yeah that that's they are notably
0: smaller than the average size for other primates yeah you mentioned earlier that in a previous episode we answered a patron question where we talked about fairy flies mm-hmm. which are so small that it actually creates cellular problems for them yeah that their cells can't have all the things a cell should have yes <laughs> <laughs> which is insane
1: but once again like gigantism there's mystery here there is misunderstandings There are a lot of aspects of this that we can often get confused. Uh, The kiwi was often a popular example of a dwarf of the ratites, which include your cassowaries and the extinct moas and ostriches, your uh, emus and such. Big, flightless, two-legged or uh, two powerful legged walking birds. The kiwi, which is the New Zealand, the famous New Zealand bird, is very small compared to them. It's still like Hefty chicken size. Right. It's not a tiny bird. But But it's
0: in the same group, and it's unusually small for that group.
1: Yes, and the idea was that it got isolated on New Zealand when the land masses were splitting up, and that isolation caused them to evolve into a much smaller size. Favored small body size. Yep, and that they were a unique example of dwarfism in this group. But more recent studies have found that while we originally thought they were related to moas, which are a very big member of the ratites, more more recent genetic research shows that they're actually probably related to cassowaries, which are still not small, but not moa big. Mm-hmm. And some more recent fossils discovered shifted our understanding of the timing of when Kiwis would have gotten to New Zealand and seems like those were flighted. So it's likely that kiwis might have had a flighted ancestor and so we're not small because they got isolated on New Zealand but we're small because they were flying right and then lost flight when they became when they got to New Zealand. So the reason for their small size might be
0: completely different and the way they got to where they are might be vastly different. Yes. This also came up in again the monitors episode last mm-hmm. episode where we were talking about how there has been debate as to whether or not Komodo dragons are giants because that species is unusual, or because they made it onto islands where the the environment favored that size, or if they are just part of a lineage of giant lizards. Yes. That they're only unusual today because they're the only remaining species of that group but that that group has been giant for a long, long time. Those can be really hard to to tease apart from each other. It's exactly what happened with the giant storks in the news. Yes, absolutely. This, why... In fact, I think I said it back then as well. We didn't record these on the same day, so now you're seeing some behind the scenes. So that's how good this comparison is. (laughs) We're we're, we're very consistent.
1: (laughs) So nice, we did it twice. (laughs) But why an animal is the size it is, and the history behind it, can be very hard because you... Very different scenarios could lead to the same kiwi. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it can be tricky. Now, one really interesting note when it comes to evolutionary, in this case, they they typically will see it called miniaturization, is mammal evolution. There have been multiple studies and hypotheses that attribute early mammals' success and origination and some of our main features as mammals to miniaturization, to the extremely small sizes that were the commonplace for early Mesozoic mammals. One is just the fact that there is a fossil gap between the Eucynodonts and the earliest mammals. Okay. And that the size difference is notable between the Eucynodonts before the gap and the ditty bitty mammals after. And so some people have suggested that maybe that's maybe that was part of mammal evolution. Was that they are a branch that got very small. That got very small. So that could be a reason that we see mammals and not cynodonts after that. That there seems to be something that caused the mammals we see to be very small.
0: That's really interesting because I've also seen the same thing suggested for birds. Yes. That the ancestors of birds, the early ancestors of birds were not huge, but bigger than a lot of the earliest true birds. Yes. That... In the early evolution of birds, episode 37, we see smaller and smaller body sizes, which then create the foundation for the diversity of birds as we know them. Exactly.
1: Another cool thing on the miniaturization note for mammals is it's been attributed to how we got our fantastic ears. Oh. So mammal ears, which I'm sure we've mentioned before, but... Absolutely. Mammal ears are unique among vertebrates in that we have extra inner ear bones that used to be part of the jaw joint.
0: Yes, reptiles and mammalian ancestors have multiple bones that make up each side of the lower jaw. Yes. In mammals, in us, there's one bone on the left, one bone on the right, and those bones from the back have been reduced, and some of them reformatted into these inner ear bones. But there's been a big mystery as to, okay, but how,
1: because many of those backbones were acting as part of the joint of the jaw. Yes. how do you have bones simultaneously still be a functional joint that you can eat with while also transitioning to being delicate enough bones that you can hear with? And that's been a big issue of answering how we have fossils that show that's what happened. Yes, we know that. That's how it went. We Very good record. But how did you manage the stresses of a jaw joint while also becoming delicate enough to transfer sound information? And a study that looked at the musculature and anatomy of the jaw that seeing if maybe they shifted the muscles found that the highest, found that the most effective feature for reducing joint stresses was size, that the smaller they got, the less joint stress was put on the jaw joint and therefore would still allow them to have an effective bite. They often uh, obviously lost bite pressure by getting small as well. Sure. But the stress went down faster than the bite pressure.
0: Interesting. So that so, might have been part of what let them reformat those bones.
1: Yes, exactly. But that might have been why they were successfully able to evolve the ear bones we have now is because they were tiny. Interesting. So being tiny has some very interesting effects on the evolution of a group. But most often you will see phyletic dwarfism come up in regards to islands. Absolutely. We've already mentioned them a number of times this
0: episode. Yes, we've mentioned them this episode. We've mentioned them in many other episodes, most notably episode four, which was called Island Evolution, where, where we talked about this at length.
1: Oh, yes. And so a lot of the great examples are in that episode. So absolutely go listen to it if you want. Lots of meaty examples of weird island
0: life. Also, listen to episode 106 about Franz Napcha. Yes. uh, One of the early paleontologists to study this effect Mm -hmm. in the fossil record. Precisely.
1: The concept of the island rule, or Foster's rule, is that typically we tend to see large life get small, large animals get small on islands, and small animals get bigger. The reason Foster originally gave was that Small animals now lack predators, so they can become more relaxed in their size. They don't have to hide in the leaf litter, so they can become a little bit bigger. No danger. While big animals don't have enough resources on islands, so they must become smaller or die, starve to death. Since then, many other potential reasons, causes for this have been given. The fact that there's reduced species richness typically on islands, just less species, which typically also goes with less predators, in general, can lower competition and predation pressures. Mm-hmm. That just the, there's not as much competition either from being eaten or to get what you're eating. That islands are just a little bit lazier natural selection wise. There's <laughs> not much of it. And we do see an extremely strong trend of unusually big animals and unusually small animals on islands. Like they're the record of that is very sound. Modern and fossil. Exactly. We've found extinct dwarf elephants, what seems to be dwarf dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. We have also seen giant animals, giant uh the goose that we mentioned in the news yep, as well. There are
0: tons of fossil examples of large flightless island birds. Yep.
1: There's the kakapo, which is the heaviest parrot today, an island bird. Uh, the pygmy chameleon is also mm-hmm. island. Yep. And since it's snake month, I thought you might have some examples. That fit this island exa- this island situation, David.
0: I sure do. Yeah, there are numerous examples from multiple parts of the world of island dwarfism in snakes. Yeah. Where you see oftentimes a subset of a species. So a species that is found on a mainland and also on an island, and the ones that are on the island will tend to be smaller. And that is very
1: common with insular dwarfism in general and is sometimes how it is defined in certain studies. It only counts as dwarfism or gigantism if it is compared to a
0: mainland group of this species. Yes. This is known uh, here in North America. It's known on the other side of the world, for, for example, in tiger snakes. One of the best studied examples of this in the modern world is rattlesnakes in the Gulf of California. There are several islands with mainland rattlesnakes, at least a few different species, of rattlesnakes that show dwarfism on islands, there is at least one example of a speckled rattlesnake population on a particular island that are bigger. So these rattlesnakes show both insular gigantism and insular dwarfism. That's cool. But what's really interesting is I read a couple of different studies that talked about how we see these trends in these rattlesnakes, but we don't see the same trends in other snakes on the same islands yeah so the colubrid snakes in these regions aren't following these same trends which probably comes down to habitat and lifestyle studies have also documented that there tends to be a diet shift that the shift from larger mainland rattlesnakes to smaller island rattlesnakes tends to correlate with a shift from eating mostly mammals to eating mostly lizards Ooh, makes sense This is a trend that is found across a number of different snake species that shift from mammals to lizards with the smaller size. And one of the papers I found also noted that large island snakes tend to correlate with the presence of colonies of nesting birds. So all sorts of factors from the lifestyle of the animals, the the competition for food, what food is available, reproductive habits have all been potentially correlated with whether different species of snakes get bigger, get smaller, or stay the same when a population of them makes it onto an island.
1: Yeah, so even the island rule is extremely varied within a closely related group, like just snakes Yes, respond to it differently. And also, your point about the food availability being important to the snakes and whether we saw a change in their size also seems to be true in many other predators. With mammals, we see very different trends in the island rule between herbivores and carnivores. That herbivores tend to respond most heavily. Uh, One of the biggest effects was competition, whether there are other herbivores. Uh, And one of the driving forces there could be that you're in a much smaller size now, a much smaller area. So competition, if there are multiple herbivores, could be raised. And that having small and big herbivores is beneficial. Mm Because now you can niche partition and the big ones can eat higher up food, and the small ones can eat lower down food. And so you may see a stronger push in that because we do sometimes see gigantism in herbivores, though typically it's more common that we see herbivores get small on islands. But predators competition and area did not matter at all. It was only prey availability. That was the only thing that the study found to be consistently correlated with size
0: change on islands and predators in mammalian predators which is interesting because one of the studies that i read about the snakes found that there was a potential correlation between island size <laughs> and the body size in certain island snakes yes which goes back to the point that it's going to be different in every case <laughs> yeah a, a
1: <laughs> endothermic warm-blooded mammal and a ectothermic cold-blooded snake are not going to react to the same environment
0: the same way, even if they're both predators. Also, the potentially a difference between active hunting and ambush hunting. Who knows how many different lifestyle factors are part of this phenomenon. Absolutely. We also find
1: some weird situations with, like, plants. Oh, yeah. There have been studies on how plants respond to islands. Are there island giants and dwarves among plants? Kinda. Okay. So it has been an idea that's been around for a while. Darwin noted that many island trees seem to be derived from continental herbaceous plants and that they may have become more tree-like to compete for sun on the island.
0: Gotcha. So they, they were more shrubby or bushy. Yes. On the mainland and then they become trees on the islands.
1: Exactly. So that could be considered island gigantism in plants. Sure. A study that looked at different dimensions of different parts of the plants did find correlation. It does seem that plant stature and leaf area follow the island rule, but the seed size does not. Oh. So not all aspects of the plant are changing the same way on islands. Gotcha. There are also some exceptions, not just situations where an animal doesn't change its size, but where they change it in the wrong direction where there are some large mammals that seem to have gotten bigger on islands. Kodiak bears were cited as an example. Oh, yeah. Yep. (laughs) And uh, an extinct Crete deer that was larger on an island than the mainland cousins, as well as as a few species of mammals that were small, mice and a little small marsupial that got smaller on an island. So this, along with just a lot of vagueness as to really how reliable how how reliably often is this happening has brought a lot of questioning onto the validity of the island rule right is this really a rule yeah can we really say that the island rule or foster's rule is a rule or is it just something that happens sometimes right sometimes life on an island tends to get much smaller or bigger than its mainland cousins and so people have been debating this for the last 50 years since it was first proposed. Another point that many have made is that what large and small mean are not always properly defined. Yeah. So what what exactly do you mean by that? How much larger is large? Does it have to be outside of their potential size range on the mainland? Or does it just have to be at the upper end of it? Like, what do you mean they're larger? And... Does it need to be a consistent amount of largeness or smallness for us to call it a rule? One study I found from 2018 took a very different approach. Instead of looking at the actual animals, looked at the studies on the island rule. They reassessed and evaluated and kind of, you know, took a critical view of studies on the island rule. 143 relevant studies. They found, according to the studies only about 50% of those supported the island rule only 50% actually came out saying we find support while many authors will be quoted saying that that 59% of studies show support so the actual when actually counting the percentage seems to be a good bit lower than what many authors claim there is they then looked at something called harking which is a term that means hypothesizing After the results are known, Mm -hmm. basically adjusting or coming up with new hypotheses after the results come in, you go, oh, well, now that we see that these new hypotheses all make sense, right? Which can be fine because that can give you lots of really good ideas, but you need to state clearly what hypotheses you had beforehand and which ones you had afterward. Because if you present those new hypotheses as some of your originals, it may Seem like it gives extra support that your study was testing that to begin with, which is misleading and can adjust how our understandings for the support of a big rule, a big evolutionary trend like this. For the island rule in particular, if they are studying an animal not intending to look at the island rule and it doesn't follow it, they're probably not even going to think of the island rule. They're not going to say, and it does not follow the island rule. Right. But if it does seem like it might follow the island rule... Now that's a topic to include in the paper. It might even make it into the title or the abstract, Mm -hmm. making it seem more like this was something that was intentionally being tested from the beginning.
0: Right. So the term island rule is likely to come up more often in positive examples than in cases where it's just not there. Precisely. If you go searching for island rule, you're not going to find a bunch of non-existent or negative examples. Precisely. So, when they removed the papers that they found
1: guilty of harking, mm-hmm. they found only 43% of the papers supported the Iron Rule at that point. Interesting. So, at this point, it looks like a majority of papers on it actually don't show significant support for it being a consistent, regular evolutionary trend that we can really say is solid.
0: Right. Now, this, of course, doesn't mean that it doesn't happen. No. But of course it happens. We, we can, just listed a whole bunch of examples yes, we of it happening. See it happening. But how consistently it happens is it like if you put this species on an island, you can expect this to happen? Exactly. Versus this might happen. Yeah, it's a thing we've seen happen on islands or a thing that
1: tends to happen on islands. Mm-hmm. And so th- it's been hotly debated. There are many out there who say it's not. It's not really a thing. It happens, but it's not really a thing that just is an island feature. Yeah. Like, so that is still being discussed to this day. It's been discussed for the last 50
0: years, so it's nowhere near the end. That's fascinating to always just to get insights into the science of how we do the science. Yes. And how we discuss and present things and what can lead us to misunderstand how common or how consistent something is. Also really interesting, because now, dear listeners, you can go back and listen to episode four, where we talked about island evolution, and keep that caveat in mind.
1: Absolutely. (laughs) Because some of these
0: studies that were cited in this episode, we didn't have back then. No. If that was 2018, then that study did not exist when we recorded that episode. Yep. So... (laughs) Things are
1: changing. Things are changing. The times, they are changing. But this is also not the only... Trend when it comes to body sizes of animals. Not the only rule. Not the only rule. There are other rules that have been noted and stated for when we see things get big and small. And we will discuss those after the break. When it comes to large evolutionary trends in body size, there are some rules. They're called rules that you'll see come up very often. Specifically, Cope's rule, Allen's rule, and Bergman's rule. I've heard of all of those. Yep. These are rules that basically are describing common trends in how animal life responds to, depending on which rule, different aspects of either time or location and how it affects their body size. Now, as we just mentioned with the island rule, there are caveats, and none of these rules are absolute, that this is just has to happen. Yep. Some of them, in fact, contradict each other. Yes, they do. <laughs> but to give you a brief definition of each, and then we'll take a slightly deeper dive into them. Cope's rule, named after Edward Drinker Cope. Episode 58, one of the guys in the Bone Wars. Yep, but uh, I believe was never actually stated by Cope. It was named after observations. Oh, interesting. Cope made, but wasn't actually quoted from, quote, Cope. This postulates, this gives the idea that lineages, groups of life, tend to get bigger over evolutionary time. That effectively, if you look at a group, you know, take any group of animal life, that at the beginning of their evolutionary history, when we first see them show up in the fossil record, they will be smaller then we will tend to see them later on in their evolutionary history. 10, 20, 50 million years later, they will be bigger. Yes, and that that will continue. This is one that is, of course, a very broad statement. Yes, and which we've
0: already contradicted in this episode. Yep. (laughs) But
1: there is a lot of research on it, so we'll look into that. But quickly, just to give you the other rules so you can have them in your mind, because these overlap as well and are often talked about in relation to one another, Allen and Bergman's rule both deal with where animals are on the planet or what environments they're in. Bergman's rule, named after German biologist Carl Bergman when they stated it back in 1847, says that broadly distributed groups, populations in colder areas will tend to be larger than the populations in warmer areas. That if you have a group of animals spread out across the planet, the smallest ones are going to tend to be in the warmer areas and the largest ones are going to tend to be in the colder areas. Sometimes you'll see this linked to latitude. How close or far from the equator are they as to smaller things near the equator, bigger things farther from the equator. But originally and officially it is temperature that Bergman's rule deals with. Alan's rule is using the same measure of temperature, or sometimes latitude, but is instead looking at limb length. And so you'll see these two side by side. We won't be talking about rule as much in this episode because it doesn't actually deal with body size, mm-hmm. but it is dealing with the same scenarios as Bergman's, identical, but is instead saying that animals in warmer areas tend to have thinner extremities, while animals in colder areas tend to have thicker extremities. Both of those are dealing with retaining heat in cold areas and not overheating in hot areas. Yes. the more mass you have, the more heat you retain and the less surface area you have so you don't cool off as quickly in a cold area, but you'd overheat more easily in a hot area so thinner, smaller makes you much easier to keep cool. Now copes is that's I feel like that's the one I knew like earliest on like that's the one I had heard about most frequently. Of the rules, yeah. That just—I feel like that one was slightly more famous,
0: at least in my hearing about it. Yeah, I definitely heard about Bergman's rule first of these. Really? I've heard, i hear Bergman's rule all the time. Yes, and which and comes partially from working with quaternary paleontologists, <laughs> <laughs> which makes sense. And Bergman's does have a lot of
1: solid support for it, so we'll get into mm-hmm. that. Cope's rule. One of the issues with Cope's rule is, while even if we take the the suggestion at face value. Why it's happening hasn't been answered. Why would animal lineages trend bigger and bigger over time? Exactly. One of the original suggestions is just that the originators of groups, the the earliest ancestors, tend to be small. Right. So just statistically... If you're going to pick a direction... You you can only get so much smaller before you're getting into fairy fly territory, (laughs) but you can get lots bigger. So you're going to see an upward trend in size for that group. There's also been the suggestion that all those benefits we talked about for gigantism could be a driving force on a group level that's just like, yeah, if this species can get big, th- it'll be more successful. So you'll start seeing bigger species, which would then therefore be a natural selective pressure for lineages to grow big. This rule has plenty of studies supporting it and plenty
0: not supporting it <laughs> so like so many things with coke <laughs> it's controversial
1: it's controversial
0: <laughs> there are a
1: number of scenarios that do seem to fit into this rule quite nicely dinosaurs have been pointed out that dinosaurs at the beginning of the mesozoic are about 25 percent smaller than average size for dinosaurs at the end of the mesozoic that mm-hmm. in general dinosauria gets bigger over the course of the mesozoic we also see that with mammals, that the earliest mammals were very small. And even if you just go from the end of the Mesozoic, that mammals at the beginning of the Cenozoic are notably smaller than the average size for mammals later in the Cenozoic. And
0: we've mentioned a few examples of this in previous episodes uh, of specific groups. Yes. Like elephants and horses.
1: And that's one of the things they note here is that very often, even not just as an overall group, but within lineages of mammals, you see about almost a 10% increase within individual lines of mammal evolution. So there are some that do seem to fit that. There's even some contradictory ones that you wouldn't expect to fit, but do. Mesozoic birds also showed a general increase in size, even though flight would seem, like you were saying,
0: to not necessarily trend with that. Yes, and even though they started out, it seems, by getting small, After that, you can see a trend in increase in size. Exactly. Uh, That's also true of pterosaurs. Pterosaurs got bigger and bigger over time. So
1: we see lots of groups do this, but many have said, yes, that's happening. But if it is just that the originator was small, well, then that's not really an evolutionary trend. That's just happens. Like, if you start out with small and then you diversify, well, just statistically... That's going to give you more options. You're going to increase your number of big ones because there were no big ones.
0: Right. That, that might not necessarily be something informative about evolution, about the process of natural selection, or about success of various animal lineages. That might just be an inevitable consequence of the way that evolution happens. Yes, exactly. So if you start out small, it is more likely that the lineage will gradually on average get bigger than it will get smaller.
1: Well, it'd be the same way as if you had, you know, uh, if you had a group of people and you increase that group of people, it's very likely whatever factor you're wanting to look into diversity of that group or hobbies of that group, you're going to get more of those just because you increase the number of people. Mm -hmm. Like you're going to get more people who play sports. Did sports become more common? (laughs) Is that a correct way to say that? Or you just got more sports players because now there's more people. So some people have called it a psychological artifact. (laughs) That it is is something we are interpreting, but it's not actually a pressure. It's not actually a thing evolution is driving. Mm -hmm. It's just that it happens as a group diversifies. There was one study, but looking at rodent teeth, that found that while you did see the population of these rodents skew to a larger size in their distribution, the overall size category basically remained the same in the fact that most of the rodents were still small, but a number of individuals got bigger, which skewed the overall average mass. But the group itself was not really getting bigger as a whole. Gotcha. So it's one of those where- it
0: stayed uh, mostly in the same weight class.
1: Yes, exactly. With a couple of exceptions. But- Looking at it from the outside, you see a skew to larger size Mm -hmm. over time. But is that enough to say that the group got bigger over time?
0: Right. If you've got one or two species among a 100 species that happen to evolve giant size for whatever reason, that's going to ramp up the average. Exactly. It's also worth noting that Cope's rule is something that we're looking at over long evolutionary periods of time, which means we're relying on the fossil record, which as we have discussed repeatedly, including in this episode... Fossil record preserves large things better than small things. It sure does. Which means that we can also be seeing a bias in the fossil record.
1: And even when we look at today's animals, there was a study in 2010 that was just testing Cope's rule. And they looked at 3,253 extant mammal species. (laughs)
0: Living
1: modern day (laughs) mammal species. And looked at the phylogenetic tree of their history and found that the current data, doesn't seem to favor cope's rule interesting that study did not find significant support so that 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 is a common consistent trend yeah so this is another one where there are absolutely groups where it does seem they got bigger over time but saying that animal life tends to get bigger over time may be an overstep yeah that may be misleading and that it kind of is almost
0: the opposite but a very similar feeling as life used to be bigger. Yes. That life I, I will get bigger. Just, I <laughs> was just going to say this episode has turned out to be so much of countering misconceptions. Like not only like common misconceptions from just the the average everyday person learning about stuff yep. but also scientific misconceptions. In our history of studying these subjects. Absolutely. Something about giant-sized animals makes it easy to make overgeneralized statements. Yes, absolutely.
1: That's (laughs) precisely it. Now, almost on the flip side is Bergman's Rule,
0: which does have a lot of support for it. Yeah. In certain scenarios. So Bergman's Rule, uh, again, it's interesting because you pointed out that Bergman's Rule is larger body sizes in colder habitats which tends to correlate with latitude. Yes. Like more polar tends to be bigger, but it isn't actually exclusively that, which was news to me. Yeah. Or if I had learned that, I had forgotten that. Yes.
1: that Because this could also <laughs>
0: apply up and down a mountain. Yes. That at the top where it's colder, you should see heftier... I, I typically hear Bergman's rule used to refer to latitude, which it, it does correlate with latitude. Yeah, majority in our- of situations, that is what you're talking about. Yes, <laughs> but that, that's not exclusively what it is.
1: Yeah, temp is the key thing here. And that has been debated because temperature is not the only thing that varies at latitudes. Mm-hmm. You see other things shift from latitudes. Light levels yes. shift from latitudes. Temperature shifts, but along with that, often food productivity. Yes. So
0: if, if light and temperature are changing, then plants are
1: changing. Yeah. So there have been those who have said, okay, we're not arguing with the trend, but is the reason you're giving the correct reason? Right. And in almost a reversal of what has been the the common conclusion here in this episode, uh, yeah, no, it does seem like temperature is the driving course. Oh, cool. It, that, that, it seems that that is absolutely the driving main cause for Bergman's rule right. is hot and cold way to go Bergman yeah now where it gets different is that this absolutely applies to warm- bodied
0: animals yes All, and I and I can think of a mm-hmm. bunch of great examples among mammals yes like here in North America and what's so cool about Bergman's rule is it isn't just like yeah if you look at mice up north versus mice down south yeah you'll see a difference also a species yes. White-tailed deer mm-hmm. tend to be bigger up north than they are down south. Yeah. Uh, foxes within a species will be bigger toward the north than they are toward the south. With increasing latitude, we are seeing this size shift.
1: Well, you we can even see in body masses of people. Individuals living at different temperatures will show, on average, a population. Allen's rule, I know, has been found to with limb thickness to fit even with some human populations. Cool. So it's... <laughs> t- Animal bodies react to temperature very well. <laughs> Warm-bodied animals, birds and mammals, is very common. It has been found uh, a number of studies, but a 2003 one is the one I found said looked at 94 species of bird and 143 49 species of mammal and found that over 72 percent of the birds and 65 percent of the mammals followed Bergman's rule extremely well. Cool. Where you get the Gaps in this rule is when you look at ectotherms, or cold-bodied reptiles and invertebrates. Yeah. Things that aren't maintaining their own body heat, and therefore don't have a reason to maintain, to retain it, but also need to get it from
0: outside. Yes. Which, in reptiles, so again, to go back to snakes for snake month, although mm-hmm. this is also true among all sorts of reptiles and amphibians. Yes larger body sizes tend to be seen more in the tropics. Absolutely. Near the equator, which is also where you see more diversity, which might also be a factor in that, that where you have more diversity, you are simply more likely to see larger body sizes as well.
1: Yes. Once again, when you increase the numbers, you're more likely to get outliers that Mm -hmm. are especially big. So one thing we haven't actually explained is why being bigger as a mammal is helpful in a cold place. And this comes down to a mathematical law called the square cube law, or the cube square law. Which we have brought up before on this podcast. When you take any physical body and you make it bigger, the surface area, the outside surface, does not increase as quickly as the internal volume. So if you took, you know, if we take a cup and make it bigger, the amount of surface area on that bigger cup is, has not gotten as big as quickly as the amount of water you can now put in that bigger cup. Yes. So... Surface area does not increase at the same rate as internal volume, which means when you're bigger, there is less skin for heat to radiate off your body. So when a bigger animal has less skin to lose heat from. Compared to their
0: internal volume. And their inside has more volume to maintain heat, to be warm. Yeah. So compare us with an elephant or a bear, a bear mm-hmm. which has a very similar body shape. A bear has more surface area than we do. There's yes. more skin-to-air contact, but it has way more volume than we do. So it <laughs> loses heat more slowly.
1: Yes. To, to, if anyone's still having trouble with the, the ratio, with us and the bear, what that means is if you took a human and a bear and you skinned them both, mm. <laughs> if the bear weighs twice as much as we do, what's left over weighs twice as much as the person, the skin of the bear does not weigh twice as much as the human skin it hasn't increased the same amount. That's the key. So the opposite is also true that if you get smaller, you now have more surface area compared to how much is inside you.
0: So you can lose heat very quickly. So in a hot environment, you can cool off very rapidly. Yes. This is something I will often cite When my girlfriend complains about being very cold. Yep. uh, Because she is a very petite person, and I will tell her that that's because you have a very low volume to surface area ratio. Yep. You're radiating lots of heat. I stay warm easily. That big muscly person over there (laughs) in their tank top on a winter day. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, I I, I love cold weather. (laughs) I like to keep my AC nice and chilly.
1: I get hot very quickly. With ectotherms, with your reptiles, your cold-blooded animals... This is still true. They still obey the square cube law because they are a physical thing. Yes. But they need to get heat from their outside environment. At that point, the more surface area you have, the more efficiently you're going to heat up. And the less surface area you have, the longer it will take you to heat up. So getting bigger where it's colder would actually be a detriment to warming up in the morning for a reptile. It would make it slower for them to be able to get the heat they need, and also slower for them to lose heat if they if they choose to, which is one argument that has been put in favor, that a big reptile
0: is going to stay warm longer. Yes, you will retain heat longer, which has been pointed out to certain things like sea turtles are really mm-hmm. good at retaining their heat. It's also something I've seen in discussions of parental care yes. in certain snakes, in rattlesnakes. One of the things that has been observed is that baby rattlesnakes will cuddle up close to their mom. And one of the suggestions is that the mother being bigger retains heat longer. Yes. So the babies trying to stay warm are losing lots of heat from their tiny little bodies with lots of surface area. So they get real close to mom who's retaining more heat with a larger body.
1: Yeah. So there are reasons it could work for them to get bigger, but it also would hinder them warming up in these cold environments. So people have studied it and looked into, does it seem to fit? Some things seem maybe. Uh, it seems like egg size, that is. it does seem to be true in many groups that you see bigger eggs the colder it gets. Okay. Uh, and smaller eggs the warmer it gets. But truly, some ectotherms seem like they follow Bergman's rule while others don't. And a couple of studies I saw that looked at one for turtles, one for lizards, specifically for Bergman's rule, said neither of them mm. supported And that seems to be more the trend in studies looking at Bergman's rule in cold-blooded. So it seems like Bergman's rule applies to warm-bodied animals for sure, like solidly. Yeah. And then every now and then you see other groups fit into it, but not as a rule
0: for your reptiles and your invertebrates. Which makes sense. It also makes sense that ectothermic, quote, cold-blooded animals would vary in whether or not they meet this because ectothermic animals are extremely diverse yes like warm-blooded animals are two lineages of animals yeah ectothermic (laughs) animals is everything else which you're bound to see lots of variation i also wouldn't be surprised if there are other factors that are related to temperature but not directly temperature for example just to name the one that comes to mind first snow i can only (laughs) imagine snow is awful for ectothermic animals yeah well and also i don't like snow
1: uh tiny animals and tiny animals if you're big you can plow through a snowbank. if you're small you need to burrow underneath it or not go
0: through it so if you're a snake even if potentially you could be bigger and do okay farther north there may be environmental factors like well maintaining this low diversity and small size helps us hide from the snow better and that's just an example off the top of my head. I'm not citing any no. empirical data to support this is just me having a vendetta against snow.
1: Well, and it's it's also a very good point that the drivers for warm-blooded animals might not be the same drivers for cold-blooded animals. Mm-hmm. A lot of cold, cold-blooded animals go into torpor during the winter where they shut down and they hide and they wait out the coldest part of the year, which is trickier to do if you're huge. Yes. Like you... You can't hide underground as easily or under a log. So it might be easier to be a small reptile in cold places because you can wait out the cold. Not necessarily that you're handling the cold better, but you can hide from it, like hiding from the snow. So there's other reasons that you might see a reversal or even when ectotherms do fit it, they might not be doing it just for the temperature. There might be other
0: causes. Precisely.
1: There's also the fact that if global temperatures change, Bergman's rule should still apply. Yeah. And with our warming world right now, we are seeing that, yeah, a number of animals are just getting smaller generally, globally. Mm-hmm.
0: We also talked about this in episode 103, about the Paleocene-Eocene thermal maximum, mm-hmm. where we saw that global temperatures rose relatively quickly, not like modern day quickly, <laughs> but, you know, for, for Earth normally. It was cute back then. Relatively quick, <laughs> uh-huh, relatively quickly, and we saw a lot of diminished sizes in especially mammal species. Absolutely. It's famously noted in horses.
1: Two recent studies in 2019 and 21 looked at North American migratory birds and Amazonian birds. Respectively, both were long term studies. They may have been related to the same gathering of data, but four decades of info in these two populations of birds. The North American looking at 70,716 individuals from 52 different species. Wow. And I didn't get an individual number, but 77 species from the Amazon, all of which have shown a decrease in overall body size over the last four decades.
0: Wow, which is totally what Bergman's rule would predict.
1: Oh, yeah. They've also shown many of them, not as conclusively as the body size, but still quite regularly, a increase in wing length compared to body size. Hey! Which may be to be more efficient. This was much more in the migratory birds than the Amazonian ones. If your body size is decreased, your energy consumption for migrating has increased because you're not... You're smaller. It's more distance compared to you. So longer wings will continue their ability
0: to migrate. Yeah. Bigger body size in birds is better for long flights, for soaring, for staying up there. Interesting. And that's a fascinating, and we haven't touched on this a whole lot in this episode, but that is a fascinating little point about how changing body size in a species has cascading effects on all sorts of other aspects of that species. Yes. If a species gets larger, that changes what you need for locomotion. It is why walking animals at large sizes tend to converge on those column-like legs, legs directly under the body, because that's kind of what you need after a certain size. Large-bodied birds tend to converge on larger, broader wing shapes for helping to keep those bodies up. Being very large or being very small has all sorts of impacts on other aspects of animal evolution.
1: Yeah, physics doesn't scale. You can't just make something the size of an elephant but shaped like a mouse because it's going to collapse under its own weight and not be able to move very well because its legs are not able to handle that much mass. Yeah. So we see some major trends. We also see Bergman-esque trends in plants, but not the same a study in 2009 looked at 22 different environmental variables to try to see what global patterns there were in plants from latitudes, equator to pole, and they found that in the colder, drier environments, where it's lower productivity, you tend to see a wider range of heights in the plants, Huh. with a wider degree of short to tall plants, while in... The warmer environments, closer to the equator, wetter, more productive, there is a notable lack of short species that you see tend to see lots of tall species. So it's more the opposite. Once again, if you call tallness the same as size. Right. In pl- like it,
0: Which, eh, sure.
1: It's, it's, it's trickier. You can't measure a plant the same way you can measure an animal. Nope. They are fundamentally <laughs> different. <laughs> but there is a... Temperature and latitude change in the plant pot, you know, communities of plants that we see across the globe. Very similar patterning to Bergman's rule, but different results. Yeah. Interesting. (laughs) They also seem to be more attributed to precipitation level.
0: That makes a lot of sense. Than
1: temperature. That seemed to be the real key one. So it's, like I said,
0: Bergman-esque. It's still following a lot of the similar patterns. We need a a German botanist to come up to name this effect after. Agreed. (laughs) Now, there is one other named
1: trend in gigantism that we haven't talked about yet, but we have talked about on the podcast before, which is deep sea gigantism.
0: Oh yeah, episode 128 we went to the deep sea. We sure
1: did, and discussed the fact that we often see species of a group reach much larger sizes at depth. and sometimes you'll see this as polar gigantism. They're very very similar. Mm-hmm. We closer you get to the pole and the deeper down you go, basically the colder waters you get into yep we tend to see larger species, larger individuals of groups and there's been tons of conversation about to about why this happens. The cold water aspect of it has often been attributed to oxygen levels, that colder waters can dissolve higher amounts of oxygen. Yeah. Cold water can hold more oxygen. It's just because it's less active. It's not going to bump the oxygen out of the water as quickly as warm water would. But there has been research that has found that oxygen levels in water does not correlate with oxygen accessibility.
0: Mm in water. So it's not quite like those giant insects of the Carboniferous.
1: Exactly. That's actually specifically what one study in 2013 which was titled Why polar gigantism and Paleozoic gigantism are not equivalent. <laughs> <laughs> oh
0: man, I am just as smart as whoever wrote that. <laughs> yep.
1: That more oxygen in the water is not the same as being able to get oxygen more easily. Yes. That when you have more oxygen in the air it interacts physically with a body differently than it does in water. Air and water are fundamentally different. That they sure are. Yep. <laughs> so more oxygen means bigger arthropods, bigger invertebrates on land. That doesn't seem to coordinate within water the same way. What one finding suggested is that it may still be in response to oxygen, because oxygen really does seem to be the, the factor that trends with the size in these situations, but maybe it's not that they're getting more oxygen, maybe it's that they're dealing with more oxygen. Oxygen can be toxic at too high of levels. Mm. Like most things on the periodic table, if you have too much of it, it will kill you. You can get oxygen poisoning. There was one suggestion that was perhaps these large body sizes are to better resist oxygen toxicity. Oh, man. More body
0: is harder to poison. Yes. Because you, you're denser. There's more of you. Yeah, it diffuses throughout the body more. Yeah. Than it, being concentrated it, in a tiny body.
1: Chemicals. It takes more chemicals. It's why the we take more tranquilizer to take down a big animal than a little itty bitty one. Yep. So they might be big to resist the higher levels of oxygen and not get poisoned by it. Interesting. And one of the big reasons I brought it up here at the end is... It has been found that the trends that we see, the patterns that we see in deep sea and polar gigantism follow almost exactly with Bergman's rule on land. And one study, a 2001 study, suggested that really we should combine these two, that Bergman's rule deals with surface latitudes and deep sea deals with depth. Right, but it's all temperature
0: it's all related kind of
1: yeah it's all following basically the same pattern the temperature
0: gradient yes. whether or not the temperature specifically is the main factor the factors are following the temperature gradient yes exactly um so now we need a third german person
1: <laughs> yep so there are a bunch of patterns of gigantism particularly. Insular dwarfism is really the one example of patterned dwarfism that we tend to see.
0: You could also argue I suppose that just the Bergman's rule includes both. Exactly. Yes. Bergman's, typically the way we say it is, you are bigger in the colder Mm -hmm. areas or in the higher latitudes. But a hotter earth is also smaller animals. And if, you know I mentioned the foxes and Bears do this, and deer do this here in North America. If that population started up north, then the evolutionary trend we're seeing is dwarfing, is miniaturization as they move down south. (laughs)
1: Exactly. So there are a bunch of patterns that have been noticed, some more solid than others, some solid in certain scenarios, while not in others. And the bottom line is, what causes animal life to get big or small basically depends on what situation you're talking about and what animal you're talking about. Yeah, That's going to vary population to population. Yep, and lineage to lineage. Like, you can't say birds get bigger in this situation. Well, some have. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> some snakes get smaller on islands, but that's not something that we can say definitively. Like you mentioned, being big-bodied or small-bodied fundamentally affects everything about the way you are an animal. Yes. Like, it affects how much energy you need, how you're going to need to move around, how much space you
0: need. It affects fundamentally the way you interact with the rest of the world. And I think that's a really interesting point uh, in this subject that we won't go into here. We'll leave this mainly as an exercise for the listeners. But thinking about how those changes in size affect everything else. Yes. We mentioned anatomy. Uh, food gathering mm-hmm. right? if you a giant sized animals tend to have to focus on ways to very effectively and efficiently get lots and lots of food Well, because once again that square cube law you've got more guts <laughs> yep and you didn't get you. another head no <laughs> you need to get th- way more food into the same mouth so it affects locomotion it affects feeding behavior it affects reproductive behavior boy does it right larger body size can larger or smaller body size can affect, for one thing, how easy it is to find a mate, how easy it is to physically mate. Mm-hmm. I, we've had, we talked with Laura. I don't remember if we've mentioned this on the podcast, but the phenomenon of large bodied animals getting hurt during mating. Yep. <laughs> because a clumsy move while you're trying to stack two bodies against each other when you weigh two tons can be really dangerous. Yeah. It can also have a, a major impact on gestation. And reproduction. It is not a coincidence that the longest gestation we know of for land animals uh, in the modern day is also the largest land animals on uh, that we have. It takes a long time to grow a baby elephant. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's just every, everything about an animal's lifestyle. And just to sort of tie it all together, we've hinted at this, of course, throughout the episode, it also affects the way we study them. Yes, it does. Giant-sized animals are... Easier to study, and they're more charismatic. We we tend to be more fans of them. They get more funding. Mm -hmm. They everyone goes to see them at the zoo. Yes, they're easier to find. They're easier to track. They leave more fossils behind that are easier to identify. It is very rare, for example, over the last hundred years, that scientists have gone, "Hey, we discovered a new species." Of one ton animal. Yep. No, but we've discovered tons of new species of tiny, tiny, tiny little animals. Well, and uh,
1: I think of this often when, like, different animals are compared in, in how you know good they are at something. And what will often get ignored, because a thing I noticed while taking notes is I found many lists of benefits of being big. Mm-hmm. I did not actually come across a written list of the benefits of being small. It's just the opposite. Yeah. We knew it because we've been studying out, but I did not find that written on any of the studies, which I think is ignoring the fact that, well, there's obviously huge benefits of being small because most life is small. Yes. In fact, most life is very small. Yeah. Like the giants are the outliers. Mm -hmm. That is an oddity. Vast majority of life is extremely small. So obviously that's the beneficial way to be because otherwise most of life probably wouldn't be doing it. Right. (laughs) Like it is an extremely successful. Most biomass on the planet is tiny. Most animal biomass is tiny animals. Mm -hmm. But we get stuck on looking at why are those things big? How is that beneficial? And we forget that. Well, obviously it's
0: beneficial to be small because they're doing great. And I think that that, uh, there's all sorts of reasons for that. One, that it's just always useful to point out is probably we focus so much on the benefits of being big for the same reason that we tend to focus so much on the benefits of being warm-blooded, Yep. even though there's tons of great benefits to being cold-blooded, and that we focus on the benefits of, for example, being omnivorous, Yep. even though there are tons of great benefits to being herbivorous or carnivorous, because we are, at the end of the day extremely selfish oh yeah (laughs) we are very self-centered not like as individuals although some of us (laughs) but like we we experience the world through the filter of our own personal lifestyle and behavior and our personal lifestyle behavior experience is that of humans yes and we are warm-blooded we are very big oh yeah we are quite large animals like
1: and Even within this context of gigantism, we are one of the biggest primates. Oh, yeah. Like... We're not the biggest. No. But we are way up there. We are way bigger. Like, you have gorillas and orangutans and us at the top end. And then everything else, we are notably larger. Like, even a big chimpanzee, I'm obviously (laughs) in a higher weight class than a big chimpanzee. So we are... You could consider us
0: giant apes. (laughs) Like... Or at least that apes are giant monkeys. Yes, exactly. And we are among them. Yes, exactly. Like, yeah, we, we are big. We're big animals. So at this this epi- I love that this episode, one of the themes that sort of emerged in this episode was identifying evolutionary trends and identifying biases in how we study these trends and in how we interact with these. And one of the most important biases of, Always, of course, is that we are but humans. Yep, There are only one species is studying all the rest. <laughs> yep. <laughs> it's, yeah. Imagine the conclusions that crock and snake <laughs> scientists would come to. Yes. It can be very satisfying to say, here
1: is the rule. Mm-hmm. But it, it is often a bit too broad of a brush. Or at least we need to be careful. Mm-hmm. Uh, one study was talking about Cope's rule said, any study ascertaining support for Cope's rule must be very careful. Yeah. And that's basically the rule with all of these. If you're going to try to make a statement of what life does, you need to be very aware of potential biases and potential contradictions. Yes.
0: That, I think, is a great scientific rule to keep in mind, except, of course, in the cases where it doesn't apply. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Now, that will end
1: our conversation on gigantism and dwarfism in the evolutionary record. But we still have one section left, which is our patron question. Hey, we sure do. Every episode, we like to answer a question from one of our patrons, which if you sign up on our Patreon at a certain level, you can send us these that we will answer on episode. Now, we had
0: one that would have been perfect for this episode. Yes. Daria asked, Are plants also affected by island dwarfism and gigantism? perfect patron question for this episode. Great question, Daria.
1: In, in fact, so good we already answered
0: it. Yes, that was early. Rewind, yep. uh, listen to that. The answer is kind of a little bit. Some parts of the plant seem yeah, to. Kind of, sort
1: of, maybe. But other parts, the seeds don't seem to care whether they're on an island.
0: So we have another question. Yes. From Daria. <laughs> this is the This is the backup question. Daria asks, if we continue to live in a high carbon dioxide planet, What changes do you think humans might evolve? And at what point would we consider us a different species? And corollary to that, do you think we have already had some changes to our bodies due to increasing levels of carbon dioxide? Very good question. Very interesting concept. Fascinating. Um, I picked this one because it
1: goes very well with Bergman's rule on the warming planet where... That does not deal with having to breathe more CO2, but the more CO2 is part of what's causing the warming planet.
0: Yes, those go hand in hand.
1: you can't separate one from the other. As far as how it would affect us, the issue with us peoples is we are very good at adjusting the environment around us. Mm -hmm. So, like, if you you have a group of people move up to, you know, move all the way down to Antarctica... It's not likely that even many generations from now, we would see a huge effect of Bergman's rule because they have heaters right. and warm clothes. Like We've
0: adapted our tools instead of our bodies for the most part. Now, that being said, we do see variation in different populations. Even in modern day, yes, we do. we'll see variations between, for example, industrial nations and other nations in just our physiology and lifestyle changes and such. So we would absolutely see a shift over the
1: long run, you know, whenever we're able to, you know, if we make it there, whenever we're able to look back on the hundreds of, you know, millions of years of human civilization.
0: I wonder if we would get smaller. uh, Yeah. Not only because temperature increase, but also because... Higher CO2 in the atmosphere would mean a lower relative amount of oxygen in the yep. atmosphere. Yep, yep. And less oxygen could also impact body size, as we've discussed, or potentially other features of our physiology.
1: Absolutely. And so that could definitely f- fall into it. Now, to my knowledge, most mammals have not seemed to trend with oxygen. Uh, in their size, they they never seem to sync up. At least in any of the studies I looked at, makes sense. But absolutely, temperature could have that effect. We could also see some effect on you know how our lungs take up the air. You know, our blood takes up the air because mm-hmm. our blood and lungs are very specialized, very adapted for the atmosphere mm-hmm. we evolved in. But if that atmosphere changes, I wonder if we'd see differences in our blood chemistry that. Oh yeah. It starts specializing to be like even more efficient at grabbing oxygen from this now denser
0: CO2 atmosphere. Or like you were saying about deep sea gigantism, perhaps we would develop features to help reduce the risk of having too much carbon dioxide. Yep, yep, yep. Because that's another one that too much CO2 is poisonous uh, for us and basically everything else. Yeah, that 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 if we time traveled forward from now to this
1: the this speculative future. The humans there might be breathing just fine, but we might pass out from over CO2 (laughs) inhalation.
0: Uh, Much more likely, I think, is that we would end up adapting indirectly. Yeah. So, for example, our technology will change. Yes. And that might have an impact. So if our technology has to change, let's say that increased CO2 and temperatures lead to changes in food availability. Yep. Crops are going to react to that. If that changes what food is available, that might end up having an impact on our physiology down the line. Yes. If we're eating, for example, I don't know, less meat, right? If we take steps and reduce meat on purpose to reduce rising CO2 levels, or if it's just we have to, right? We have to change because of the way that livestock or crops are being affected. Change in diet might have an impact and so on down the line. Yes, yes. We would absolutely see tons of
1: change in our technology, like CO2 scrubbers, Mm -hmm. you know, inside buildings that, that we may just, that just becomes part of your AC unit is also a machine that removes chunks of CO2 from the air that's being pumped in. Sure, sure. You know, so you could see stuff like that. I would definitely expect lots of that.
0: Whether we or not we've already seen changes due to that, I wouldn't think so. No, I haven't seen anything Mm -mm. related. Certainly nothing major. Yeah. Nothing that would probably be easily attributable to these rising CO2 levels.
1: We humans have removed
0: a lot of
1: variables of natural selection from our average day-to-day lives by the big groups we live in with infrastructure Mm -hmm. so that you're not typically having to go out and survive on your own.
0: Well, and it's also the dramatic rise in CO2 has only actually been going on for yes. so long. So we are slow to respond. Hospitals are really one of the biggest things that have just
1: <laughs> stuck it to natural selection because we decide to save our, our sick and elderly. It was oh, so bizarre. No, but like we don't, the those most affected by the environment aren't just dying off regularly. Right. So we are slow to respond to those kind of changes anyway. And the change has not been around for very long. So it's not likely we can see anything now, and it's not likely we would see anything dramatic for a very long time, unless human societal infrastructure collapses <laughs> and we are suddenly mad maxing it right. around. Then, yeah, no, things are going to get much more natural selecty.
0: As to the other part of the question, when would we consider ourselves a new species? Uh, briefly, and and to be realistic, we wouldn't. No, we would look back a long ways into the past and go, all right, this is a place where we might consider that we had changed. Yep. Uh, like we do now. We look back and we go, all right, this is the place where we draw the line between us and Homo erectus, because it's been long enough that we get to decide where that line is. Yes. I don't know that Homo sapiens would ever change their own name. No. Like, I, I think we will always be Homo sapiens.
1: <laughs> yeah. I think what would <laughs> the, uh, I think what would more likely happen if we are going to be designated a new species is When an alien race comes and looks at the history of mankind and goes, ah, you can see with the rising CO2 levels, Homo sapiens gave rise to Homo whatever, whatever. Yes. (laughs) And there's the, that's the, we think that's probably the cause of this, this species changeover. industrious. Yes.
0: Yep. (laughs) Excellent questions. Really fun to think about. Tons of fun. I love those, those speculative questions.
1: And with that, we can start wrapping things up. This has been, appropriately, a big episode. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Lots to say. Lots that wasn't said. I'm sure there are examples of
0: gigantism and dwarfism we didn't get to that you would have wanted us to. Please tell us your favorite examples of evolutionary, gigantic, and miniaturized species.
1: Yes, please. Because there's so many cool examples. There's so many cool weird causes and questions, mysteries that we're still trying to figure out yeah. as to why we see this happen. So this is a very actively studied topic today. Just like you mentioned with the islands episode, it is very likely that downline, if we revisit this topic, there will be extremely new views. Yes. That we, we have could more save then. Mm-hmm. So let us know what your favorites are. Let us know if you have
0: questions or if there's more aspects of this topic you want us to talk about. And of course, let us know if there's other topics you'd like to hear us discuss on the podcast. Go down in the episode description to find all the ways to contact us. Also, hey, there's a week left to Snake Month. Yeah. So if you want to engage in the Snake Month stuff on social media, on Discord, if you want to join our limited time tier on Patreon, the Snakes and Crocs tier, it'll be up for just a little bit longer. Check all that stuff out.
1: Absolutely. Thanks again to our new patrons and the requesters for this
0: episode. And to you for listening. You know who you are.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, you know, and as usual, we release episodes every fortnight. So check back in, see if that episode, see if this episode is not truly
0: a example of gigantism I mean, among. They, I I do track our all of our numbers yeah. and stats and stuff, and I can tell you that this podcast definitely follows a trend of gigantism. Oh yeah, do we follow Kobe? We rule? follow yeah our episodes. <laughs> definitely follow cope's rule yeah well you know hey the island evolution episode was probably like an hour and 40 minutes long yeah.
1: well
0: hey there's an. the debate continues more support this is this is the one you can tell us if there are other podcasts
1: that don't fo-
0: do podcasts follow bergman's rule oh if we had done this podcast in minnesota yeah would would the would, would the episodes be longer and would our audience be bigger? Yeah. Would we be more popular? Right? <laughs> would we be figuratively
1: bigger? I would love to know whether Koch's rule <laughs> applies to podcasts. Or
0: Bergman. I want to know if yeah. Bergman's rule applies yep.
1: to podcasts. I really want to all right, everyone else who listens so, to more podcasts than us. Get us some data.
0: <laughs> Ridiculous. Alright. Bye-bye.